The Joe Rogan Experience. Train by day, Joe Rogan Podcast by night, all day. And here we are, ladies and gentlemen, one more oh. time, live, kicking it. N- never worry whether or not we're going to run out of shit to talk about. <laughs> I don't ever want you to worry about that. Before we had this conversation, Aubrey's like, we still have shit to talk about? Dude, we're always going to have shit <laughs> to talk true. about. There's no, th- the world is a crazy fucking place filled with madness. Indeed. It's never going to change. And there's always shit to talk about. That's the most beautiful thing about having a podcast. It's like being a dirt miner. You know? <laughs> <laughs> there's fucking dirt everywhere, man. You can't go wrong. There's always something to talk about. <laughs> And Jamie, you sent me something over this weekend uh, that was uh, about the drugs are getting fucked over or uh, getting fucked off at. Yeah, it happened this week, actually. I think it was Tuesday. Um, a couple, quite a few congressmen got their chance to take their, their shot at him, I, I suppose. And this um, is the drug czar under the Obama administration. Yeah, Being called a czar is kind of <laughs> douchey. Gross. Anyways, right? Are you Russian? Why yeah. are you just drug czar? That's a fucking stupid title. Do you title. think Putin makes his hookers call him czar? Uh, he probably has some American name. You call me President <laughs> of the United States. <laughs> I am President. Of- they all want to be President of the United States. Yeah, all probably. those gangsters that are running those, you know, they know Russia's a mess. They don't want to run that thing. They wish they'd be fucking running America, <laughs> flying over New York City and fucking saluting people. But no, trapped in that frozen wasteland with a few good he's cities. He's got some stars and stripes boxer briefs that he pulls off. I bet he does. Oh, yeah, I, I bet, bet he does. But he's, secret- he's a secret wannabe American. <laughs> So what did they say to this fucking um, well, czar? This, this is Rep Cohen. I'm not quite sure the czar gets his chance to talk back to this guy. This went on for like an hour and a half. Quite a few, like I said, quite a few guys got their chance at him. Um, talk about low hanging fruit. Yeah. Well, <laughs> <laughs> shitting on the drug czar. I mean, if there's, is, there's ever has there ever been any sort of a company, any sort of a, a, an off, any sort of an office that has had less success. Than the people that look for the war on drugs. Yeah, Has, the abolitionists banning alcohol <laughs> in the twenties. They that's didn't it, do right? very good. Yeah. Well, that no, they that's even like less because they they abandoned that one. The, <laughs> yeah, they gave they just, up. Fuck it, we tap out. <laughs> the war on drugs is like a dude that just keeps getting his ass kicked, just getting mm-hmm. up, keep getting his ass kicked. You're you're not even close to winning this fight. There's no way you're going to win yeah. this fight. Like the idea of a war on drugs and being run by a czar. Holy schmo. What a fucking, what a terrible job you guys have done. <laughs> like, out of all the things we think about, like, the great thing, like the Department of uh, what a Transportation, whoever has done the highway systems. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's amazing. You can drive from California to New York City. You could do it in four days. Anybody can do it. You could yep. drive all the way up to Canada. You could drive down to Florida. I mean, you could literally make your way across the entire country, visit every state by car. I mean, that had to be worked out. Slowly but surely, we had to pave roads. We had to chop down trees, blow holes through mountains. That was awesome. They yeah. did an amazing job. I mean, people that want to complain about the highway system, dude, you make your own highway. Let's see what <laughs> you would do. Yeah, it's not perfect. We're, it's made by humans. Nothing we do is perfect. Yeah, but, but then the drugs are. It's like creating a highway where only people crash. Yeah. That's it. It's just only crashes. It's all fucking falls apart. <laughs> it's just bridges fall down. You run straight into mountains where there's supposed to be tunnels. Sometimes it's concrete. Yeah. Sometimes it's paper over sinkholes. <laughs> we don't tell you. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, they're, they're fail- total abject failures. Mm-hmm. There's never been, like, a department that has failed more 
Like across the even the fucking immigration, they stop some of that shit. <laughs> yeah, you know they, they they fucking have you know everybody knows about those border patrol guys. They they have to run across the border if they want to make it into America. There's a lot of work in crossing into from Mexico into into America. It's not a done deal. Mm-hmm. But the war on drugs, get the fuck out of here. The amount of damage you've done to drugs is absolutely zero. <laughs> yeah. Oh, you've taken a few drugs out of the system. The fuck you have? You've just made them more expensive and a commodity so people can create these gangster organizations. And Yeah, even even crazier. That that part. Yeah. Create these Mexican cartels. Mm-hmm. You remember when we were kids and Mexico was a nice place to visit? Fuck yeah. I'm going to be telling some stories about going over, just going over the border of Mexico. This was 15 years ago, you know, 14 years ago. It wasn't that scary then. Me and uh, Eddie Bravo went to uh, spring break in Mexico <clears throat> at Cancun. Mm. Party. The first year, that was work. <laughs> it was kind of crazy. We got hammered, too. And then <laughs> it was, it was uh, work, get way too hammered, and then recover, and then fly home. <laughs> fucking disaster, fucking pounding headache. I was doing something for MTV. I'm glad you remember it, because maybe I remember Eddie doesn't. It. Yeah, I don't think Eddie does. But, but we had a good time. Um, but my point is, there was no apprehension. Yeah. You know, we were like, ah, oh, this is going to be fun. We're going to go uh, see a bunch of concerts. Like, Puddle of Mud was there. I met The Rock. You know, it was the first time I met The Rock. Mm-hmm. And it was a skinnier version of The Rock. But I was a skinnier version of me, too. Um, and, uh, you know, met a bunch of people that were back. It was fun. Yeah. But it was no like, big no big deal. We're just going to go to Mexico. Just like, you know, how I feel like if I would go to Australia. Yeah. It's cool. Here we are. But now it's like fucking beheadings and chainsaws and people hanging from bridges and body bags, plastic hefty bags filled with chopped up people. And you and then drug czar leans out from his cape and says, you're welcome, world. You're welcome. <laughs> Look what I've done. Kiss my fingers. I've <laughs> prevented crime. Imagine what it would be if I wasn't here. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and what a shit job. Because they've literally pumped up gigantic criminal organizations by keeping people from legitimately selling things that they want to sell. And we're not even, t- I mean, there's there's always going to be something that the community doesn't want. And there's always going to be idiots who want that something, whether it's smell and paint. Those crazy fucks that blow paint into a, a paper bag and then they huff it, that's what they're doing. I mean, they're just, they're taking fucking paint and they're smelling it. You can't prevent that. You can't prevent that kind of retard. You can't. You can't stop it. So as long as there are hammers, there's going to be someone who hits themselves in the fucking face with a hammer. There's no, there's no way to prevent that. So to, to make things completely across the board illegal just because they're dangerous, that sets a really fucked up precedent. Because you've got to start examining all the other things that are legal. Like, here, I don't want to suggest this, but here, how come... You could get a lighter at a fucking gas station. And how come that gas station has a pump that pours flammable liquid on it? And there's no guards anywhere. There's no one to stop you from just pouring flammable liquid on someone's car and lighting a match and throwing it on there. There's no one there to stop that. But everybody's worried that people are going to have guns. Oh, what's the, the people with the guns are going to kill people. They're going to walk random into people and just kill people. They could also light you on fire at the gas station, okay? That doesn't happen, though. You know, I mean, we can't stop people from selling saws at fucking Home Depot because someone runs out and just runs into the mall and just starts sawing at people. We can't. And the other argument was, well, a gun is a more effective tool. That's true. So are bombs, okay? And you can make those. There's a fucking... You can make... 
real legitimate bombs out of all the things that you could find in your average chemical store, things that are legal, and you can make them by, with the ingredients on the internet. It's out there. But then you take this back to drugs and let's say <laughs> it's not actually, most of these drugs are not anything like taking a hammer and hitting yourself in the head. It's actually, you know, as we've all seen and we'll talk about, I'm sure, on this one as we always do, myriad benefits from all of yeah. these different drugs. And not only that, so let's say it was like a hammer. Let's say it was punching yourself in the head with a hammer. Well, the punishment for doing that, to prevent you from doing that, is to throw you in a box with crazy criminals and completely dehumanize you where you may or may not get raped. Who knows? I watch a lot of Oz. It looks like it sucks <laughs> in there. But there's no possible way that that isn't worse than what you're doing to yourself when you're taking some drugs in your house. Yeah, they're not trying to help you. They're just punishing you and making it scary for everybody else. And by the way, I'm not against gun regulations at all. I should just be real clear about that. I'm also not against drug regulations. I think it shouldn't be easy to go to a doctor and just get Oxycontins. I think there's a reason why. And by the way, uh, whoever uh, sent me uh, some information about that, apparently uh, since we had that podcast with the uh, people from Vanguard who did the Oxycontin Express, that documentary. Apparently, Florida has tightened down their uh, drug laws substantially because of that, because that documentary exposed uh, how fucking insane that whole Oxycontin Express is that goes from Florida to the northern states. It's just a pipeline of Oxycontin and the massive amount of people that have prescriptions for it. But now it's apparently becoming a real issue for the people that are addicted because now they're fucked because they don't have anything to fill that addiction that's created by the pharmaceutical companies making sure that the drug prescription laws were very lax in Florida mm-hmm. so they could profit. It's all fucking bananas. Hey, so Boca. yeah, that would help. Ibogaine. Um the I'm not a, I'm not against regulation. Like uh, uh, you know, there everybody thinks that this, uh, this is a black and white thing. It's like no, it's not a black and white thing, but you can't tell people what to do either. You know, I'm not against regulation, but I'm I'm against you telling people what to do, especially if you can't prove your point. And when when you start talking about marijuana or psychedelics, when it's mushrooms or even LSD, the amount of danger that you are in when you take LSD and compare the amount of danger that you take when you eat salt, you know, you could eat, we found out 10 ounces of salt will fucking kill you. 10 ounces. That's it. Nobody thinks about that, but you fucking sprinkle salt in your fries and salt on this and saw it at fucking salted caramel ice cream. It was delicious. Like, we don't think about salt being murderous and deadly, but at a certain level, it is. You get to a certain Mm -hmm. amount, salt will fuck you up. So will acid. There's an LD50 for most things. There's an LD50 for mushrooms. It's quite high. LD50 for marijuana, 1,500 pounds in 15 minutes. (laughs) Come on, man. When you say salt is legal and 10 ounces will kill you. I don't know. I've eaten like two brownies and I'm pretty sure I might have died. (laughs) (laughs) I think that's bullshit there. I've been there when I'm like, I'm going to be the number one guy. I'm going to be the first guy to die. I'm going to fuck up the whole cause. Well, you know what does die, though, is your ego. That's why you feel like that. Mm -hmm. People don't understand what a deep psychedelic experience eating weed is. It's insanely psychedelic and really especially if you can do it with an isolation tank eating the weed and getting it to the tank is like a fucking cyclone a vortex that takes you to the center of the universe and destroys you like destroys like just highlights 
everything that you don't like about everything you've ever said, brings up shit that you said a decade ago, and it's like, what about this? Have you cleaned that up yet? What about that? Do you remember this? This should make you feel bad. like Bob Marley said, it's the mirror that reveals you to yourself. It really does. People don't like that, but you should. Mm -hmm. I talked to somebody yesterday, and the only drug he'd ever done was he one time, he smoked weed and he liked it. He's like, oh, that was awesome. So he made a bunch of brownies, and they didn't really know what they were doing. And he just ate a bunch of them, right? (laughs) And then had, and he was trying to drive somewhere and meet people, and he said it was like the most miserable experience. He's going 40 miles an hour on the highway. He's freaking out. He's sweating. (laughs) It's the second time he's ever done it, and he ate too much. He's like, man, I couldn't handle any other psychedelic drugs. I'm like, listen, man, I've done most of them, and eating too much weed is like the most intense shit I've ever done. You know what I mean? From all over the world, that'll fucking get you somewhere. Yeah, and you have to deal with it. I felt much better after DM, every DMT trip. <laughs> every DMT t- trip I've had has freaked me out. They've taught me a lot about life. Taught me a lot about myself. Given me these weird visions and weird insights. And but when it's over, I feel good. Yeah, I feel like legitimately good. When I feel like I get raped when I do too much <laughs> weed. Like, I just get mounted by a demon and have my face <laughs> fucked. Just claws in my brain and... <laughs> and you're sitting there taking it. <laughs> knowing, knowing that the end is without a doubt coming, whether it's 50 years or 60 years or 100 years, however long you think you're going to live, stupid, it's coming and no one knows what's next. And your whole life has been running on this momentum of madness. The whole life, the whole fucking thing, right out of the vagina, bam, crazy parents, crazy life, <laughs> honk, honk, beep, beep, fuck you, psh, psh, tonight on the news, your whole life, madness, and trying to stay afloat in a river of fucking crazy people, everywhere you go, bobbing fucking crazy maniacs, all over television, all over school, every fucking person you date, every person you stick your penis inside, or they let you... You stick their penis inside of you, whatever it is, they're all fucking crazy. And guess what, fuckface? You're crazy too. You're crazy. We're and, all crazy. And then you take a little dip where everything can get quiet. Yeah. And you have this moment of clarity where you can reflect back on this crazy circus you've been in and really think about it and then maybe make some course corrections, make some yeah. changes pop out of it that's what's beautiful about it in zen they call it satori these Mm -hmm. moments of clarity and consciousness in a general circus of life yeah awareness it's a the reset button that's it i like to do it once a month some way or or another Mm -hmm. once a month hit the reset and a lot you know i have a huge benefit of having that tank having that tank in my basement is so gigantic hell yeah because if i ever need to just go on a, a a wild one I just eat a pot brownie and get in that fucking thing. Just outer space. Jesus Christ. (laughs) Yeah, I've become molecules in a never-ending fractal universe before. I was was in this one vision that was so intense. The problem with these things is they're so intense, especially, by the way, when I take Alpha Brain. I've got this new um, way of... uh, well, every, we've always talked about the dreams. Like mm-hmm. Alpha Brain has a, a really intense effect on dreams. But it also seems to have a very intense effect on the visualizations that I get when I eat marijuana. Mm-hmm. Like I, I, I get a more intense series of things that I see. Like when you eat it, like when you close your eyes, not when I'm, my eyes are open, there's no hallucinogenic effects, sure. at least for me. 
But when I close my eyes, I see things in front of my eyelids, like dancing cartoons that are neon and they're having sex right. and breeding and stuff. I, I see like weird, crazy shit. Almost, you know, like very, very psychedelic. Like if your eyes were open and you saw those things, you would think, "Wow, I'm on, I'm on something serious. Yeah. I'm on some mushrooms here." But having your eyes closed and just envisioning these things like as a dream, somehow or another, they become less preposterous or less crazy. But it's very intensely hallucinogenic, and more so it seems when I take Alpha Brain. So. The eating of the pot, which is intensely hallucinogenic. I mean, I've had wild experiences eating it and just being on a plane and closing my eyes on a plane and seeing just nutty fucking light shows in front of my eyelids. But inside the tank, it's on, just cranks it up to 10. Just find some new gear that you didn't know existed. I think seeing those things to me is a good sign that you're in that state of presence. You're in that state of the nether where mm. you're just accessing the unconscious realms of the mind. And that's, for me, even when I meditate with nothing, that's what I'm kind of shooting for. Mm -hmm. So if I can close my eyes and start drifting into other, just following the visions without trying to direct them or think, that's when I know my mind's shut off. Mm -hmm. And that's when I know I'm in a good, a good place. And psychedelics tend to have that characteristic always with them as well. And I think it goes hand in hand. It's just, that's what happens when the mind gets quiet and you're just kind of floating around looking at these images as mm -hmm. they appear. Yeah, there's a thing that you do when you're in a, a normal state of consciousness where you're sort of almost controlling and defining your reality by your, your, your ability to see things clearly. You know where they are. You know distances. You've got everything locked down. You know where everything is. You see the people around. You see the objects. But when you're on a psychedelic and you're closing your eyes, or even if you're in like heavy meditation you're closing your eyes, you, you, your imagination starts to kick in and you start to see and dream and feel things they don't have to be there like the idea that they have to be you like you have to put those on a scale for them to count like you have to <laughs> take those ideas and hit them with a hammer otherwise they're not real no they're, they're they're real like the the imaginary ideas that you get with your eyes closed depending on what's causing them whether it's meditation and yoga whether you, you know got punched in the face and you're seeing stars, <laughs> whatever the fuck it is that's causing it, they're, they're still these visions are still real. You know, you can say they're hallucinations, and you'd be correct medically. But if say if I gave you DMT and I I told you well, what I'm going to give you is a natural psychedelic compound that your own brain produces, and all it really does when I give it to you is it's going to fuck with your cerebral cortex, fuck with your visual interpretations of things, and you're going to see things all scrambled up, like as if like your connectors are plugged in wrong on your television. You're just going to see a bunch of crazy shit. So don't worry about it. it doesn't mean anything. And you come back and you say, I saw God. And he told me the nature of the universe is love and that the universe is actually made of, of love and understanding. The suffering only exists for us to be able to truly appreciate the love. And as human beings evolve, the suffering and the, and, and the love will do battle. And th this is literally the good and evil of the Bible. And this is what, what, why this has been interpreted by every major religion. This is this internal struggle that we all know. This is the reason why it's so admirable when someone becomes a good person. Because we know how difficult it is to always choose the light. No, 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 no. No, you, no, you were just tripping. No, no, right. no, no. You don't understand, man. We gave you DMT and your brain fucked up. Now, if I gave you a, an, another pill and I said, this is a pill that was brought to us by angels. 
and it came in this 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 beautiful crystal box and it's directly from God himself and it's a door it's a door to God's kingdom and you're going to get to talk to him and hang out with him for 15 minutes you want to <laughs> do it you'd be like oh my god it's from God yes it's Fuck from yeah. God it's from God it has a look the pill has a cross on it just take it <laughs> so you take it you go direct and you have the exact same experience that I described the exact same experience as the experience where the guy told you, oh, it's your cerebral cortex is confused and you're just seeing shit that's not there and your imagination creates God. The experience is exactly the same. And that's what people have to understand. Everybody wants to, the same assholes, want vitamins don't work. Why, you don't need them. You know, maybe, <laughs> shut up. <laughs> that's not what the fuck is going on. It's the exact same reason why this, this, this need to dispel any notions that you're having a spiritual experience and to sort of minimize those experiences. But it's the same experience. And if you benefit from that experience to the same extent as you would benefit from a real visit with angels, then, then it's just as good, dummy. It's yeah, just it's as good. It's causing the positive effect that you could only dream to achieve yeah, by doing and, that. And it's being it, duplicated by science, too, now. You know, and it's Johns real. The Hopkins study, and it's real. This it's isn't happening. Mormonism. <laughs> right. Yeah, this isn't fucking Scientology. This isn't golden tablets <laughs> that they found in Pennsylvania or whatever. Yeah, you, all you have to do is smoke this stuff, and you fucking travel to other dimensions. Like, I'm not making it up. You, mm. You'd say I'm making it up, but every fucking person that's ever done it comes back to me and goes... Oh, you shit. weren't even making that up. Like, <laughs> nope, I wasn't even making that up. Crazy, huh? Crazy that you're hearing about that from the Fear Factor guy. So I was thinking about opening the archives. I've never talked about it, but my very first psychedelic experiences that kind of got me on this path. I've told the ayahuasca story, the aboga story, but this is all after I've been somewhat through the initiation cycle. So I was thinking of getting into that. And where was it? So this was, <clears throat> I was like between 18 and 22, so in college, and I started my first one at 18, and I'm going to change the geographic location just a little bit, because in case she's still rocking and rolling out there. <laughs> anyway, so go out to the Southwest, crossover, um, she picks me up in a, you know, land cruiser or whatever, she's got a dog in a car, and she is, you know, kind of that loose shaman, but more of like a... More of like a psychiatric kind of medicine giver, you know, not mm -hmm. really, not trained in these ancient arts or ways and indigenous people. She just kind of knew about the medicine, had a great heart. And, and so she picks me up and I'm pretty fucking terrified. I've done nothing. I smoked weed once with my brothers and had laugh and we ate like the worst food. What possible. made you want to do this? I was like, I'm very curious by nature. Like, I wanted to see that's, what was possibly get you involved in some gay sex. You gotta be very careful. <laughs> Don't be too curious. Well, I haven't been curious about that yet. They'll but, get you. you know, if you're too curious, those motherfuckers are tricky. They're guys. <laughs> remember that. Always remember, gay guys are guys. So yeah, and I was fairly agnostic. I kind of had a sense that maybe there was something more, but I was more borderline atheist. Like, ah, eh, there ain't shit. You know, you go in a box. All these people are because like, I knew enough. And I, and I went to high school in Texas, and they're always trying to get me to these Christian ministry things, and I'm asking them questions, they're looking at me like, huh? You know, I was like, this is a bunch of fucking bullshit. So I was more on the atheist side. So I decided, you know, as a connection through the old, you know, old family friends, and uh, I just decided to go off there, kind of like a rite of passage. So picks me up. I'm nervous as shit. We get to the place, there's some nice little mountains and hills, and we got this, like, little yurt that I'm going to stay in. A yurt? It was a yurt, yeah, <laughs> built up out there, no power, anything like that. And uh, so we're going to do it the next day. She says, okay, good night. You know, here's everything you need. 
So I'm up all night just nervous as shit because you feel like you're about to jump off a cliff. You have no idea what's going to go down. And I sometimes, you know, I get a lot of these people sending me messages and I forget what I was like that very first time because it's fucking terrifying. Mm -hmm. You know, so I get up early in the morning and I go for a long walk and I'm just trying to get my head around this. I'm so afraid that I'm going to completely lose touch with reality that I'm just, and I may never get back. You know, that's the fear. Like, you're going to be so gone. What's there? What's left? How do you cling to anything? You have no control. You know, so I'm freaking out. So on my way back from the hike, I kind of get my head in a good place, and I pick up this rock, and it's rather flat, and I still have it to this day. And I was like, all right, I'm going to hold this rock through the ceremony, and if ever I feel like I'm completely out of touch with the earth, I'm going to have this rock here, and that's going to let me know that there are rocks. And one day I'll go back to the world of the rocks, and I'll at least be okay. So we go, and and we're about to start the ceremony. And um, my very first ceremony was going to be, and she was very open with what she was giving me, was going to be a combination of mushrooms and MDMA, pure MDMA. Whoa, she's candy flipping you right off the bat? <laughs> right off the bat. What a so, crazy bitch. <laughs> so she, and we go and we set an intention. She had me write an intention for what I was going to do. And I'm nervous. I have no idea. So I read my intention and I'm already like pretty emotional. And then we have a tea. I drink the tea and I take the pill. And I just kind of wait and my heart's thumping. I don't know what's going to happen. And then I think probably the MDMA started kicking in first. And I was like, ah. God damn, this feels pretty good. <laughs> and then, then the mushrooms started really kicking, and then the visionary experience started to happen. And I remember one of my first visions, I was walking through like a field of grass, and I was just feeling my hands move through the grass, like I was pushing, pushing right through the grass. And then I could feel like my breathing didn't seem that necessary anymore, and I was almost becoming disconnected from my breath. And then I could feel the wind coming through. And all of a sudden, the wind just went right through me. And I was, my physical body no longer existed in that moment. It was almost like I am sure I still was breathing, but it felt like I absolutely was not and didn't need to. And it didn't matter. And my spirit was completely disconnected from my body. And at that moment was probably one of the most defining moments of my life because I realized, holy shit. This little meat vehicle that I'm really attached to is not what I really am. It's just a car that I'm driving around in for now. And like this other thing that I'm experiencing and feeling separate from that body, that's something different. And the clarity I had from that moment, from being able to separate from my body was immense, you know, and I realized at some point, you know, when you're free of when you're free of these bodily confines in the mind, you're going to be able to look back at your life and see everything that you've done, good or bad. And if it's good and you've lived well and you've pushed out as much love and done the best you can, you're going to be in a heaven in a heavenly state at that point. It's going to be heaven. You know, you've done your job in this earth. You've had a great time. You've spread the light, spread the love, and and done you know done what you were there to do basically. But if you've lived you know badly and and done harm to people and hurt people and increase the suffering of the world. At that point, the blinders are just ripped off your eyes and you got to stare dead in the face of all the demons and evil you've ever done. And that's fucking hell. That's a hell that's worse, worse than any fire and brimstone because there's no way to not look. It's like one of those horror movies where they have you, you know, your eyes pinned open and you can't not look at something terrible in front of you except you're looking back at your own life. And, and I realized that, you know, all, I had a lot of anger towards Christianity at that point. And I was like, this is all bullshit. I was like, wait a minute, maybe there is a heaven and hell. You know, it just doesn't involve the demons and the sugar candy mountain and the bullshit. 
but it's a point where you're reconnected with spirit and you get to look back and reflect your life. And nobody else needs to torture you or pat you on the back, wish you to the pearly gates. That's all going to be through yourself. And that changed the fucking game forever. Wow. Was that? <clears throat> First experience. First experience. Knocks it out anything. of the park. Knocks it out of the park. Wow. I was up, and that was, that was a really cool night for me. I was up. You know, all the stars are there. We're far, far away from electricity. And the old dog that was in the car was... Um, you know, had really bad hips and they had a main, the main kind of house, little casa that was way warmer. They had a bunch of fires and things. It was nice and cozy out in the yurt. It was, you know, much more kind of rural, not much, not much going there. You got to really blank it up. And, uh, I was pretty vulnerable at that point. I was out of my body or whatever. And the coyotes start coming in at the night. And I remember that the old dog just stayed right outside my door, never spent the night outside because it's old arthritic dog and just stayed out there awake all night with me, you know, as I was kind of going through this stuff. And it was just kind of a cool kinship I felt. Probably one of the first times I felt like a real kinship with another species, like a different animal. That so you were high like, as fuck. You were clinging, high to, as fuck. clinging to reality. You had a rock and a dog. Those <laughs> were your two best friends. <laughs> that was it, man. And I was just on a fucking mission. And so I went back. I went back to her and did the same thing, you know, meet her in the airport, go drive across the border, and then and then go do these journeys. I did several different other, you know, interesting things from that point. Uh, I snuffed, I snuffed five MEO DMT, which was a fucking wild experience. Snuffed it down in Mexico? Yep. Snuffed it. So they created, I think it was a snuff from the bufotoxin in some kind of traditional way. Uh, I'm hoping they harvested it, you know, friendly from the frog or whatever, Mm -hmm. but they created a snuff and you know, pretty much it was this like caterpillar looking amount of powder. It was like ruddy brown. And um, that was, this was my second, this was my second journey, second time down to see her. And I guess I had some kind of straw or something. I was snorting. It wasn't a rolled up hundo, but it was like <laughs> some kind of straw or old kind of seed tube. And um, and so I snuffed it. And that was my first DMT experience. But of course, as you know, 5-MeO DMT is a much different animal. It's even stronger. Yeah. It was <clears throat> it was a really incredibly personal experience. So in that experience, I went back and relived. I had a great childhood. I have no complaints. But my dad had a pretty savage temper. And it would just build up and he would get really intimidating and start yelling at me. And I I guess I'd built up some some issues about that, you know, as probably most kids would. I was pretty young when this would happen. And it fucking put me right back in the room with one of these most intense experiences. And I was reliving it. And my dad was in the same place, just yelling at me, like, blah, blah, blah. And all of a sudden, I, as that little kid, like, became the man that I was. I was 1920. And I was like, you're going to fucking yell at me like that now? I'm Look at me now. You want to do that shit to me now? And it was turning this fear that I had had into, like, this standing up for myself and rage, like, I fucking dare you. So you went as an adult almost and relived this experience. Completely relived it, but with the strength that I had accumulated as an adult. You know, I was doing kickboxing and I was lifting weights and, you know, I was pretty pretty athletic at that point, more so than my father. And and at that point, I just relived it as this, don't you fucking dare do that to That's me. A... I will. And, and there oh, was, shit. it was really heavy, right? And I was in that fucking space the whole time, like... It wasn't like I was imagining it. That was happening. Like I was in the room and there was tears. And then ultimately, you know, ultimately a, a kind of forgiveness, you know, where in my vision, he was like, I'm so sorry. 
you know, it's like, I understand. And I was like, okay. And we kind of, my relationship with him since then for the 12 years after was that like fixed a huge, huge divide between us, you know, where I could say, I'm a man now and I'm not scared of you no matter, no matter what you try to do, you know, and, and I kind of reversed this thing that had me a little fearful and had me feeling not like a man myself, I guess, because I got kind of dominated in a way by my father figure. And that was kind of the real coming of age experience for me. There was a guy at the park the other day. I was with my, my kids <clears throat> and we were playing around some guys playing with his kid. Seems real friendly. And he says, uh, Hey man, uh, he's gonna, you're going to be raising his hand someday about his son, like mm -hmm. meaning that his son is going to be an MMA fighter. And I almost want to tell him, like, not if you do a good job, I won't. <laughs> you know, I mean, it sounds fucked up, but I mean, there's a few guys who had uh, real good parents, like George St. Pierre or mm -hmm. John Jones. Still, his parents come to every fight, and I mean, I, obviously, I don't know what the relationship that they had with their parents was, but there's a large percentage, a very large percentage of fighters who were beaten up and fucked with as a young kid, not just bullied by by their kids at school, but beaten by their parents, mm -hmm. you know, child abuse. I mean, there's there's a ton of them. Yep. Um, there's a guy who was arrested yesterday, uh, Tiago Silva. Did you hear the story? Standoff with police? I didn't armed, dig deep. Armed standoff with uh, the police in Miami. Apparent, I don't know the whole story, but apparently involved a woman. I, I don't know what the fuck happened. It might have involved drugs. There's a bunch of different versions of it. I, obviously, the dude... It was a crazy person. What, yeah. Whatever happened, there was allegedly some guns and allegedly some fucking. Uh, he's a murderer. I mean, in the in the cage. I mean, mm -hmm. Tiago Silva's a scary motherfucker. Fuck yeah. He comes after dudes. He's a, imagine that guy with no referee and a gun. Holy Jesus Christ! You know, yeah. I don't know what happened. So, but there's a story that someone put today on the underground about Tiago Silva's childhood. Uh, the underground being mixedmartialarts.com, which is one of my favorite, well, my number one favorite website when it comes to uh, MMA. Just uh, an awesome forum, always has great up-to-date news, and uh, I know the guys that run it, and they're very, very cool guys. But the, the actual story of him uh, growing up, his childhood, was fucking horrific, horrific to read. I had to stop reading it. He's talking about his, his dad just regularly beating the fucking shit out of him. And he has a big scar on his head from when he was a little boy. His dad fucking opened him up. I mean, terrifying, terrifying shit. That's how you make a really scary guy like Tiago Silva. You make a guy who doesn't want to fucking take it anymore. He's tired of it. And he learns how to stand up for himself. But along the way, sometimes... You know, you can make a fucking monster. Mm -hmm. You can you can make a monster with abuse. You know, yeah, no doubt it has that effect. I mean, m one of my best friends is Roger Huerta, and it's no mm -hmm. it's no secret. His you know he was abused by pretty much all the female figures in his life, pretty savagely. Yeah, and you know it's it certainly can contribute. And then there's there are those people who are just meant to be the samurai of the way. You know, the Musashi types where it just yeah. suits them. Yes. So it's you know yeah. either either or. You have to have this deep calling from some mm -hmm. archetypal draw to yeah. that or there has to be something that kind of deflects you in a, in a weird way. And I wonder if I hadn't done all these different things. You know, mine wasn't that severe. I'm, I, as I said, I had a great fucking childhood. I'm very blessed. Um, but I wonder if I wouldn't have wanted to, because I was on the borderline for, you know, doing some fighting and things like that. If I hadn't 
gotten that out and really felt like I could assert myself fully as as a man then in that rite of passage, maybe I would have sought it in the cage somehow. You know, maybe that would have had to fulfill that role for even me. You know, you never know like where, obviously I was never destined to be a fucking champion, but maybe I would have gone into some smokers or something. <laughs> but, but, you know, it's, it's interesting and in, in the effects that that can have and really doing the heavy work, doing the heavy lifting that sitting there talking on a couch to somebody, you know, you aren't going to get there. Yeah. You aren't going to see it happening and rewrite, reprogram the history in your brain. So when I look at that, back now it's not like poor me it's it's oh, i'm sorry my dad had to you know inflict that that's going to be hurting him but it, i'm not affected i'm not mm-hmm. scared by that anymore i overcame that from you know from the help of this this medicine yeah the the feelings that i had when i was in high school was the the big one was i moved around a lot and uh when i was in high school i didn't really get picked on i went to a really good school it's a nice place i mean everybody gets bullied a little bit you get fucked with by people sure. a little bit but um, my, my zest for fighting was almost all entirely based on my childhood. It's mm-hmm. based on trying to overcome any feelings of, of weakness or vulnerability that I had when I was younger. So as I got less and less vulnerable, as my desire to fight got less and less too. It was yeah. r- really fascinating to, to ex- especially experience in retrospect and look back on it. Like, um... Once I was out of the house, I wasn't living with my mom and my stepdad anymore. I was on my own and just living like, like I was almost zero aggression. It was weird. It was like I wasn't in school anymore. I didn't, nobody was telling me what to do anymore. I didn't have this feeling like I was going to be this uh, utter complete failure because I couldn't get through school without falling asleep because I was so fucking bored. <laughs> but as I got like 19, 20, 21, then it became about in, in this intense challenge. Then it became a much more healthy appreciation right. for competition. Because when I was 16, I just wanted to fuck people up. Yeah. And my parents actually didn't want me to do martial arts because they were f- terrified that I was going to become this angry kid who knew how to fuck people up. Whereas before, I was this angry kid who really couldn't do anything. It wasn't, wasn't dangerous. I was 11. Mm. You know? And then this 11-year-old became 12. And then 12-year-old's like, I, I want to be like Bruce Lee. And they're like, oh, the fuck you? No, I don't think so. You know? <laughs> didn't want me having nunchucks. Yeah. I had nunchucks all the time. Oh, was, yeah. People were taking shit away from me. <laughs> I'd make them in the wood shop. I'd tell them that I was making uh, chair legs. Uh, fucking, <laughs> my chair's got two broken legs. Uh, funny that they look exactly like nunchucks. <laughs> <laughs> Mr. Chason, who's I the... I think uh, every kid loved nunchucks. Yeah. Yeah, that was it. I Everybody have, did, of course. The Bruce Lee movies, man. Fuck yeah, they were dope. And you see him swinging around those. I had a really funny story that happened there. So there was a kid. I was like seven, and there was a kid, neighbor kid, who was like twelve, and he was big, you know, way bigger than me. And he would kind of pick on me a little bit just because he was bigger. But I had a bunch of older brothers, so they would always keep him in line or whatever. But one day he did something fucked up to me, and again, that's seven versus twelve. So they're like. All right, we got a plan. And I had, you know, those foam nunchucks that you could get for mm-hmm. like playing around. They had a hard center and foam on the outside. So I had those hidden behind my back. And my brother was holding me back and he says, Ryan, go take your shots, man. I'm fucking sick of I was Kristen. I'm sick of Chris's bullshit. Go take your shots. And meanwhile, he's holding me loosely and I just have these nunchucks. And this guy's like, yeah, I'm going to get him a cheap shot. So he goes up to punch me in the stomach and I just whip him out like fucking Bruce Lee and just go ape shit on this 12-year-old kid. And I remember I was like, I am fucking Bruce Lee. So did you hit like him running. with the nunchucks? Oh, yeah. I fucking lit him up. I <laughs> lit foam, him up. Foam, foam nunchucks. nunchucks. <laughs> they were hitting him. It was like a fucking swarm of bees he just ran into. That's funny. Set him up. What a dumbass. <laughs> yeah, I'm holding my brother back. Come punch him. <laughs> 
Yeah. What kind of an asshole uh, believes that? That kid deserves it. Yeah. He deserves sure. it. Just that's a lesson the universe taught him. <laughs> what are you fucking stupid? He's yeah. not gonna hold his brother and let him let you punch him. You <laughs> silly bitch. Yeah, there's Bruce Lee with the nunchucks in that video. Look at that. <laughs> he was fucking people up with nunchucks. <laughs> Those Bruce Lee was the inventor of the retard wagon train. It's like one guy stands in the center and they yeah. all take turns. Which fucking never happens in the real world, by the no. way, folks. They they come at you a mass of bodies, all centrally <laughs> located, and they, one person grabs you, and you maybe get to punch one or two as they drag you to the ground and break everything on your body, <laughs> stomp <laughs> you into true. a fucking applesauce pulp. There's a lot of myths that I think came up from those martial arts Fuck movies. Yeah. I started watching a little bit of that UFC documentary, the 20 Years thing. Mm -hmm. That was kind of cool to see. It's intense. That was fucking. That was intense. I almost cried. Yeah, uh, I was never that was thought pretty, that would happen. That was pretty powerful. Yeah, when we were sitting and talking about it, and I was talking about how long I've been doing this, and it's weird. Mm -hmm. Yeah, twenty fucking years is a long ass time. But meanwhile, in twenty years, the twenty years of the UFC has been around twenty one now. The world, the the world of martial arts has evolved more than it has in thousands of years. Yep, thousands. Like people know exactly what works now. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's a few weird. That's me. Look, I'm so cute. <laughs> there's a few um, like um, techniques that are just starting to creep in. There's a few uh, like taekwondo techniques. Like you rarely, rarely see axe kicks, but occasionally someone will throw an axe kick. Uh, this guy, Amagov, this guy who's been fighting the UFC, he's, uh, I guess his, his background must have been in Taekwondo or some karate or something, but he throws a bunch of fucking wild kicks, mm -hmm. spinning 360 round kicks and shit like that. He does. He knocked a guy with a 360 wheel kick once in a, in a fight. It just What makes those viable, it seems to me, is you have to be good enough at everything else yeah. before you can attempt that. Mm -hmm. you know, if you just come in there and that's what you got in your toolkit, you're going to get taken down. Yeah, you're going to get drug into fucking bad, yeah. bad places. you got to have a good ground game and you got to have a good uh, takedown defense. Yeah. If you don't have a good takedown defense, you got to have a good guard. It's one of the, Donald Cerrone's so good. Cerrone's like a, an expert kicker, mm -hmm. but he also has a wicked guard. Like if you take him down, like he fucked Evan Dunham up when they went to the ground. He caught him in a triangle and just locked it up tight. Yeah. His triangle's nasty and he likes fighting. You know, those are those. That's another good component to Donald Cerrone. His, but, that head kick knockout ooh. where he kicked that guy in the neck. Oh my God! It was Ouch. beautiful. <laughs> it was beautiful. Like the shin to the neck. Yeah, Adriano Martins. He fucking caught him shin to the neck, Ernesto Who style. Yeah, you just shut off, man. Your no. shit just shuts off. Yeah, that's uh, that's what he did. It was beautiful. That shin to the neck, man. It's one of my favorite all-time techniques. Mm -hmm. Maurice Smith, uh, who's a, a, a good buddy of mine. He uh, he landed. That was like one of the first head kicks in MMA. He uh, he landed on Conan Silveira back in uh, Extreme Fighting. He hit. I'm pretty sure he shinned him in the neck. But uh, that that shin to the neck technique, man, it's a crazy thing that happens. Your shit just <laughs> shuts off. Game over. Yeah, that nerve just gets fucking blasted. Here's Cerrone and Martins. This dude fucked up. Oh. Look at that. I mean, that is just picture perfect. That is like. That is exactly how the technique is supposed to be thrown and exactly how it's supposed to land and exactly what happens when you get hit like that. You just, and night, Don night. Donald was cool, too, about that mm -hmm. when he didn't, didn't try to throw another one. <clears throat> yeah, he could have easily uncorked that punch. He's very aware. Mm -hmm. Well, he's so aware also because he fights so often. I mean, he fought four times last year. Mm -hmm. And, you know, when you fight that much, you're much more present. That's the thing about fighting is the more often you get in fights, the more relaxed you'll get when you're actually fighting, the more you could fight up to your ability. 
That's why a big layoff, when people talk about ring rust, it's not just, like, when they talk about what, what is ring rust, what is octagon rust, whatever, what is it? Well, what it is is you got to get comfortable with that crazy experience. you got to have that experience really close to you. Like, oh, like one of my best fights ever was uh, I won this uh, U.S. Open tournament. And I, or I won it because I'd fought the week before. I'd fought a tournament the week before, and I injured my groin, and I thought I was done for, like, I was like, I can't compete in this New Hampshire tournament because I'm just too fucked up. Like, mm-hmm. my, my groin is really fucked up. But Saturday morning, the day of the tournament, I always got up early because I delivered newspapers. And I was delivering newspapers at like 5 o'clock in the morning. And I was like, I'm going to fucking fight. Like, I feel good. It was really a caffeine and sugar buzz that made me fight because I, <laughs> I ate a bunch of donuts. <laughs> I had fucking terrible diet back then. But I ate a bunch of – I burned off so many calories. I had like 4.5% yeah, sure. body fat. Like, no bullshit. 4.5% body fat. And I was competing. And – um I um I ate a couple of donuts and drank a couple of do- uh, um cup I drank a full cup of uh, Dunkin' Donuts coffee, and these two donuts I'll never forget it. It was a Boston cream donut and one of those lemon cream ones, lemon custard ones, where it's covered in pe- white powdered Double sugar. Double filled donuts. Yo, I was flying on <laughs> sugar, and I was like, I'm gonna go to New Hampshire and fuck some people up. But the reason why I fought so good, I'm pretty sure, was that I had just fought seven days ago. Yeah. So it's like that that experience was still fresh in my mind. I just gotten through a whole tournament seven days ago and won. So I was like going to this tournament. I was like so used to fighting. It was it was like it was last week's activity. And here we're gonna do it again this week. You know, but when I I one time I tore a muscle and I had to take a long time off. I didn't fight for like six months. That was the longest probably ever. And I remember when going back to to fight again, I was like, "Do I even know what the fuck I'm doing? Like, am I gonna freeze up out here? Like, this is this is kind of scary." You, well, the mind gets engaged mm-hmm. again, and that's exactly Fear. what you don't want. You Terror, because yeah. that takes you out of the present moment. You know, I think that's the key for all these, all of these sports. Any fucking sport, mm-hmm. you know, you just gotta <clears throat> release the mind and the thinking about past past things, future things. You have your game plan. You know that going in. And then just let it go, man. That's one aspect moment. of it. But there's a, the other aspect is technique and skill and endurance and sure. training and discipline. Because if you don't have that... They're equally important yeah. because you could be, you could think you're a bad motherfucker and be like totally in the zone and completely neutral and zen. But if you're a white belt, Marcelo Garcia is going to fucking strangle you, okay? It doesn't matter. <laughs> yeah. It doesn't matter. What's going through your head? Oh, you know, dude, I'm different than other people. I'm in the zone. I'm, I'm completely tuned well, it's in. It's just going to get I'm you present. to the best of your ability, but exactly. if that, that may not cover the distance yeah. between the worst of someone else's ability. You, know, you could catch someone thinking about, you know, a girl that just cheated on him and mm-hmm. all fucked in the head. <sighs> yeah. He's going to be so angry. Yeah, but and that, the, playing at the worst of his ability is still smoke. Yeah. yeah. Only so much you could do. Jacare is still going to break your arm. <laughs> Hodger Gracery is still going to choke you to sleep. It's yeah. just, you're not good enough. You <laughs> right. have to be good enough and those other things, uh-huh. which is one of the things that's so beautiful about MMA or about jiu-jitsu or any martial art, kickboxing, is it's so hard to get so really good. It's so hard. There's so many things involved. It has to be a, a list of things have to be in order for you to win championships. If you, you know, if you get to be a UFC champion, you get to be a Chris Weidman, you get to be a John Jones, so many things have to be in order for you to get to be that good. Your mind, your body, life experiences, the will to win, the discipline to show up at the gym, the intelligence to not eat shitty food, yeah, all these fucking... All Meanwhile, yep. I told you about winning the U.S. Open after eating donuts, <laughs> drinking coffee. I was young. I was 19 or 20. I was, you get away with a lot when you're not really young. But 
the 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 list of things that have to be in in perfect order for you to become great at anything. That that's why it's so fun to pursue greatness or so enriching to pursue it. And even if it's just personal greatness, you know, it doesn't you don't have to be the greatest in the world at anything, but if you personally improve at something, whether it's fucking playing tennis or anything, whether 100%. it's writing books, as You're, you improve. We were talking about it right before this podcast. It doesn't matter what master you meet. It can be a master of anything. We were using the context of this bow hunter you just Cameron met. Haynes. Yeah. They're just awesome to be around. Mm-hmm. I don't give a fuck because I'm meeting a ton of them with Onnit now. It's mm-hmm. one of the great things that I love Isn't about it awesome? is these excellent people are coming out of the woodwork saying, hey, I was fucking excellent and I know what's good and I like your stuff. It's awesome. It makes me even better. And that's awesome for me. But what's even better is spending time with these people. Mm-hmm. And yeah. it's been it's such a divergent amount of skills but it's all really the same person deep down just applying that that methodology you know as your favorite quote is you know know the way broadly and you'll see it in all things it doesn't matter what your art is but it gets you to a place where you're a fucking cool person to hang around with yeah all those dudes are the same guy they're the same guy in different forms the same girl the same woman in different forms it's people that figure out how to get through this crazy maze of life and uh come out with something and they're real there's mm-hmm. there's a there's a the the real masters there's a real confidence to them there's something to them there's this this present energy they're not bullshitting you they're they're just there you know just just fucking there you know mm-hmm. and this Cameron Haynes guy was totally like that it's cool as fuck yeah yeah you've gone to the edge of the of your own darkness because mm-hmm. you have to you have to go past that to be really excellent because you have to work your way through it and you have that constant resistance. Resistance is always coming up and pushing you, you know, as Stephen Pressfield said when we were here, mm-hmm. anytime you go from the lower to the higher, resistance is going. And the journey to mastery is, that's all it is, is a journey from lower to higher. So every fucking plateau, you're battling resistance and having to overcome it to transcend to the next plateau. So that skill level and being able to do that applies to the rest of your life and it doesn't matter if it's a retired 70 year old used to be a master at something they still have that fucking quality inside of them yeah and i'm gonna read this uh email that cameron sent me today uh someone sent him i won't reveal the guy's name because i'm sure he wanted it private but he said that watching you in the joe rogan experience you're you're an inspiration seeing your approach and philosophy checks off so many boxes with me seeing someone work hard at something meaningful to them is wonderful even if i never hunt the idea that i can say you know what i want to push this area of my life to the next level can i be in better shape for this or better mental condition and that this doesn't have to apply to things like winning the olympic gold but just to be better at surfing or hunting juggling it doesn't mm-hmm. matter and he said, thanks, man. That's like, that's it. a he beautiful got email. Yeah, he got, he, got, he got that inspiration. He got that charge. Yep. And that's what I was saying to Cameron on the podcast yesterday is that I got that from him. I got that from watching his videos. I got, first of all, um, his positivity. He's like this really smiley, friendly guy who does like really nice things. Like he auctioned off his bow and gave the money to some guy who was battling cancer and, you know, and and made this really thankful video about it. Like his energy is pure. Like you can Mm -hmm. see it when he's communicating. And he's a fucking fiend. The guy's a workout maniac. He's the guy's an animal. He's a savage. He's out there fucking shooting pointy sticks at elk. And when you're hanging out with him, couldn't be cooler. So it's like. The, you, you, when you're around enough of those people, you start absorbing a higher ideal. And I think that 
we oftentimes we imitate the people that we're around. We imitate our atmosphere to a certain extent, or at very at least it sets a watermark. And but you meet people like this Cameron Haynes guy or um, hundreds of other people that have had on this podcast, it sets a higher watermark. It gives you more to aspire to. I agree completely. I, you know, I made a post on on my Facebook page that, you know, I said something like encouraging that same thing, you know, changing changing your friends, deciding who you want to hang out with and and trying to hang out with these people that really inspire you. And, you know, so then there was this backlash of people saying, you know, some people say, no, man, you're perfect just the way you are. You shouldn't try to be anything different. And I was like, well, I kind of get what you're saying. But to, in order to hang out with other people that inspire you, you can't just be like, I am what I am, bro. I'm not going to fucking try anything. You got to be in the same path, you know, to connect with them, to really be someone that they want to hang out with. You got to be pushing yourself too. And that's, that's part of the process because they're going to see that. You know, if you haven't gone out and actively faced your own demons, they'll be nice. They'll shake your hand and whatever, but they're not calling you out for, you know, beers in a game of pool on Saturday. You know, they got other people that inspire them, that mm-hmm. they want to be around and make them feel alive from that same kind of energy and connection. And, you know, I think it's, it's important. Yes. You know, some parts of us are perfect as they are, but nonetheless, that pursuit of excellence is going to put you in the class with other people who are on the same pursuit, you know, Water finds its level. Yeah, it's that old expression, game recognizes game. <laughs> yeah, that's it. It does. People who are real, they, you know, and I don't like using that expression, people who are real, because there's so many fucking abuses of that word real. <laughs> right. Keeping it real. I'm out there keeping it real. <laughs> um, but those people that are present, people that are legitimately who they are projecting, they're not putting on an act. When you meet someone who is putting on an act, God, it's glaring. It's a sore yeah. thumb. It's just throb, throb, throb. <laughs> just douchiness and grossness and get me away from this fucking idiot. And just catching a little lie here and there. Catching a little, you know, just a little exaggeration, a little distortion, a little something. That shit is bad for you. It's bad mm-hmm. for you to be around. You can catch that just like you can catch a cold. You know, you can catch distortion, lower your standards. It'll slowly chip away. If you lived in prison and you were surrounded by liars and thieves and murderers, like you were in the worst prison ever, everyone was guilty, no one was set up, no one had a bad childhood, just cunts, just the prison, the cunt cunt penitentiary. You know, your idea of what human beings are would drop. Well, it happens to cops all the time. Yes. You know, cops are dealing with the worst of humanity on a regular basis. So... They sometimes suspect, and I say this because my stepdad was on the SWAT team and he was a cop. My dad was a cop. And so they see the worst in people so often that it taints, their glasses are a little ruddy black, you know. Mm -hmm. I mean, they're seeing the worst in everybody uh, just because that's what they're conditioned to do. Yeah, they also have some of the best sense of humor. Mm-hmm. I have some friends that are cops. cops oh, yeah. Know, that I know from uh, martial arts or whatever. And <laughs> there was this dark sense of humor, man, because they just see, you know, oh, we showed up and this lady's head was in the middle of the road. And, yeah. you know, like, oh, Jesus Christ. What else do you do? But you have to be able to blow off that energy yeah. and laugh and, and, yeah. and then keep it light. Be really weird about it because, you know, when you see something like a horrible car accident and you see them every day over and over again, and then you get in your car. Okay, here we go. You know, I'm going to enter into this thing that also, you know, I saw what happens when everything goes wrong earlier today, but now I'm just going to go about my, I mean, and they see it every day. Mm -hmm. I mean, every, most likely, you know, most days they're going to see something fucked up, especially if you're in L.A. You know, if you're a cop in L.A., Jesus Christ, 
what the fuck do those guys see every day? That's why I kind of, from the cops that I've interacted with, the, the more heavy shit that goes on in the neighborhood, usually the cooler the cop is when they pull you more over humble. for something stupid, you know? It's like the cop, if you get caught in a really neighborhood where not shit happens and you're going five miles over to the speed limit, they'll be a dick a lot of time. You know, if you're in a place where they're checking on murders and risking their life and whatever, they're like, oh, cool, you turn the dome light on and you're giving me your stuff. All right, cool, man. Uh, just slow it down. You know, just got to keep it safe out here. And they'll let you off, you know, whereas the other cops are just like, oh, look at you, because their fucking calibration is off. Obviously, a generalization, but I tend to see that. Yeah, it's hard to be a cop, man. It really is. And people get mad at me on this podcast for defi- defending cops. You know, I had a cop fucking shoot my dog. They were looking for weed. I, I know I've heard those stories. I've seen the videos. I know there's cops that are yeah, cunts. Yeah, happens. There's definitely <laughs> cops that are cunts. But I just think overall... It's an insanely hard job that gets zero reward, and it builds up a resentment. And you know, human beings don't like being resented. They don't like being. They don't like that feeling of resentment. They don't like resenting people. They, they don't like the animosity. They just don't. We we're not designed to absorb animosity well. Mm-hmm. And you know that animosity that cops receive, and when every good person generally looks at you and says, "Oh fuck, the fucking cops," because yep. <laughs> you're always just buzz killing whatever they're doing, they're put in a terrible spot having to defend these weed laws and psychedelic laws, and you know even some of the alcohol laws. You know, for a twenty year old who wants to fucking drink some beers in his house or whatever. How about ticket quotas? Yeah, ticket quotas. All the all of these cunty things they have to do. Yeah. You know, causes people to despise. Imagine if none of those laws existed and cops were only there for the stuff that you really wanted them there for. People would love the cops. They'd be like, ah, oh, fucking sweet. Rape. Cops are here. Murder. Yeah, rape. Murder. Crime. Thief. 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 Yeah. yeah. You'd be pumped. You'd be like, yes, the cops are here. Yeah. Awesome. They're around. I love it when the cops are around. But yeah. because they have to enforce these terrible laws that you know are bullshit and are just fucking up your day, you know, raising revenue or, you know, even worse, trying to bust you for exploring your own consciousness, you kind of fucking hate them and resent them. You know what we could do that would crush almost every police department all across the country? Everybody just drive the speed limit and obey all traffic laws. <laughs> they would de- it would destroy them because they're so used to pulling in X amount of money per month that if we could go a few months, just a few months of no tra- traffic stops ever, people literally, they would, they would just start false flagging people. Yeah. They, they would have to. They would start, they would go after you and they would set up a fake crime and then arrest you for it. Sort of like the war on drugs. Sort of like, you know, the DEA would do. I mean, what would they do if everybody stopped selling weed? They would find retards and talk them into selling them weed and then arrest them. That's what they would do. If everybody just totally stopped selling weed, would the DEA go out of business? The fuck it would. If all these Mexican drug cartels said, listen, man, you know, we did some ayahuasca and we've got a different point of view and, man, it's not cool to harm people. So, uh, look, we made a lot of money. We're good. We're done. We're just getting out of the business. We're not selling any more weed. And then everyone in America said, you know what, man, Um, grow your own weed. I'm not selling any weed. That's it. We're done. If if there's no one else to bust, no one's selling weed, there's no one to bust, what would they do? They would set people up, man. They would would keep their job. An organism would preserve its identity, and it would preserve its life. It would Mm -hmm. preserve its its existence. And the only way to preserve your existence, you got to arrest motherfuckers. If we didn't have any traffic violations at all for a few months, it would bankrupt most police departments. Isn't that insane? Like, they're dependent on crime. 
at least this petty these, crime of parking sure. and and speeding and not stopping and stopping. And these private prisons would start to crumble if you know you took away all of the inmates who were there for these drug charges. You know, so yeah. And that's that was a good point. There's a documentary, The House I Live In, mm-hmm. and they make a great you know a great case for that. How all these private prison systems need to throw these people in prison at these overwhelmingly level high levels compared to the rest of the world is they're surviving like an organism. Like yeah. all these other cunty, you know, big corporations. They're like an organism that's going to survive at fucking any cost. Yeah. And it doesn't have to be like that. You don't have to be that type of organism, but it requires some consciousness at the fucking brain of the organism to make sure that it's not. Well, and it's so blatant, too. When you find out that these people that need these jobs lobby to make sure that these jobs are in place, and the way they do that is to make sure that things are illegal so they can arrest people. Like the policemen's, the, the, the guards, the prison guards union, they, mm-hmm. they make sure that they spend money to make sure the drugs stay illegal. Like they work actively. They spend money on making sure that marijuana is legal. Like, well, who would do that? Who would do that based on the facts at hand? Someone who profits from that. Right. Someone who profits from drugs being illegal. And the way they profit is more people get arrested and then they keep their job as a prison guard. That is slavery, no matter how you slice it. That is a, just a tricky way of being a slave master. What you're doing is you're figuring out this real sneaky way to enforce slavery. And everybody's it's not slavery, it's a choice. You don't want to follow the law. Shut up, stupid. Shut your fucking internal dialogue right now. Because <laughs> the law is just some shit that people wrote down. Nobody wants marijuana to be illegal but idiots. No one. When you look at the actual facts behind it, if you can't argue the facts, then it's, there's no conversation. And when the LD50, which is a lethal dose at 50%, meaning if there's 20 of us... We all take the same amount. Half of us would be dead. What's that number? 1,500 pounds in 15 minutes. Okay, we're done here, right? We're <laughs> done here. We're, you, I don't have to worry about that. Okay, let's, what, what else you got? Drano. People are drinking Drano. Yeah, don't do that. Okay, yeah, let's make that not cool. You can't sell Drano drinks. <laughs> what the fuck is wrong with people? But the idea that someone would lobby to keep marijuana illegal, that's where you see how laws... And things that are written down on paper can really fuck with people because it becomes doctrine, it becomes law, it becomes what it becomes is this rigid thing that can't be worked around. It doesn't have any flexibility, there's no gray area. It is this or it is that. And you end up with this this almost doctrine that's based on some it's like faith, it's like a new religion. You know, it's like saying that you know, the urges to have sex inside you or masturbate or evil and you need to go to the church. Okay, you made something that fucking makes sure that everybody feels guilty and everybody needs a priest because everybody's going to want to touch their genitals. So you just figured something out, a way to fucking hack the system so that you get everybody in some form of psychic or mental slavery. And in the prison system, I've never heard that analogy, but you're fucking absolutely right. It's like you're enslaving them for your own profit. Yeah, they're it's sick. actively making sure that people are in jail. They're making yeah. sure that there's laws in place that will ensure that more people will get arrested. 
You know, there's a movement, and the movement is, well, there's ethical considerations when it comes to private prisons and laws and also laws where there's no victim. Victim is, shut up, shut up, this fucking victim. <laughs> I need a job. I need to keep my family fed. So what we're going to do is we're going to lobby to make sure drugs are illegal. Drugs are bad for families. And so they have this rhetoric, and this rhetoric fuels the debate, and the, the laws get passed, or the congressman gets greased, or whatever the fuck happens, and then the laws stay the same or even tighten down in some cases more people go to jail and these fat cunts profit which mm-hmm. is so strange because it's it's as easily definable as slavery as anything that's ever existed you look at yeah you look at that i can't help but draw the parallels you know to religion so religion you get tithed or whatever you get have to pay 10 percent or whatever the fuck amount so you're paying for the church always from the bar and then you look at the means that they went to make sure that everybody ascribed well burning people at a stake who didn't believe that's a pretty good in way to ensure that you're going to get 10 percent of that person's money and then making sure that they're guilty always 24 fucking seven because you've made the urge to have sex which is like the urge to eat or take a dump it's not going to go away you made that a sin and the only way to absolve it is to get the priest well yeah all right you're going to make a fucking lot of money doing that you know what whereas if the priests were cool and you know maybe as if jesus's teachings were intended and we're like hey you can find this anywhere you want you got to look inside you find the truth about god inside yourself and through love and through all of these things you know people would be like hey thanks brother and they're not going to give you 10% and let you do all this crazy shit. You know, it's just manipulation. Manipulation for profit. Well, the, that's, I think the good churches uh, probably do 10%. The, the bad churches pass around baskets and they're constantly begging and asking for, I mean, who, who knows what. Do you remember when, who was a fucking that preacher? Was it Benny Hinn that had a Rolls Royce and he said that God wanted him to drive a Rolls Royce? <laughs> Doesn't surprise <laughs> me. One of those motherfuckers, but I was like, that is so bold. God wanted you to drive a Rolls Royce. They was, just they just made shit up. I mean, I was I was going looking at a horrible experience going to a dungeon of the Inquisition, right? When oh, I was in Italy. Boy. Darkest, one of the darkest places I've ever seen. The, even the fucking ideas involved in some of these things and how many of them involved your fucking penis and your vagina was shocking. Like 30% of the tortures involved that. And if they didn't want to do that, then rape was a way to get cast the devils out and punish people as well. So you, if you were a priest and an inquisitor, you could rape someone in order to get it out after you tortured and mutilated their genitals. Okay, that sounds pretty good. That's, uh, That's on the, a good on the holy it. path. <laughs> and even <laughs> in 2014, I mean, there's parts of Africa where people are regularly burned to death for being witches. And there's a bunch of videos of it online of people convincing people that they're witches or that someone is bewitched. A spell is cast under them, and families are literally selling everything they have and forcing themselves into indentured servitude to pay for a witch doctor to cure their children of being witches. It's a serious, serious issue that they have over there in 2014, this day and age. It's ideologies, man. Ideologies and beliefs are incredibly strong things, and it's so easy to manipulate people because we don't know. We, We literally, all of us, the giant mass of us, have no idea what the fuck is going on. You know as much about what life is all about as anyone who's ever lived ever. And that's really hard for people to swallow. So when we come along someone that claims to know something, they take the place of where our parents were when we were children. When you were a child and you knew almost nothing, your parents knew more than you. 
so you could go to them and they steered you right and that's how you got to be alive today and the more fear that you lived with growing up the more readily you'll accept that position the more terrified you're being and insecure you'll be you you have not found personal sovereignty so all of a sudden religion comes along and fills up this spot where your daddy used to be mm-hmm. where your mommy used to be and religion tells you and i don't mean just any religion i mean witchcraft I mean, everything, Scientology, fill in the blank, you name it. No one has the answers. So when someone comes along and they tell you not only that they have the answers, but that they need your money and they need a lot of it, and they need, they have to, you got to behave in very specific ways that don't make any sense, like don't jerk off. Yeah. (laughs) You know, the only thing that you can count on is stuff that you can reliably find out yourself. Any great spiritual teacher is going to basically send you on your own quest for knowledge and and let you come up with your own truth. Because if it's not reproducible by yourself, it's probably bullshit. You know, if you can't get there doing a psychedelic, meditating, going in the tank, trying to actually pursue, you know, this quest for knowledge and you can't come to that conclusion... I say most likely you should discard it if someone's just trying to force feed it down your brain. It should be reproducible. You should be able to get there if you try. It's also an interactive experience. You know, it's not like you someone gives you information and then boom, you're a better person. No, you have to be like on a quest to be a better person. Mm-hmm. Someone has to say something that resonates with you. You have to be able to internalize what they're saying. You have to be able to uh, analyze what they're saying. You have to be able to absorb what they're saying. You have to think about your own life in a lot of ways. You've got to do a lot of work. It's not as simple as someone tells you what's up and then you know. Because if it's all, that's almost like winning the lottery. It's like, you, like, you know, all of a sudden you have this money. Okay, now what? Well, you're going to spend it. You're fucking crazy. You, don't, yeah. you, you didn't earn that shit. You don't know how you got there. If somebody gives you Not the perfect stick. knowledge, it's going to be like, wow, that totally makes sense. And then pff, off, off to do heroin. You know? <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, man, I couldn't help myself. I just fucking, I just need that crack. Yeah, it's not real. It doesn't have value to Yeah, you got to be searching. You got to mm-hmm. be searching to clean up your own life. And that's one of the things they say about people when it comes to uh, getting clean. People that are that are abusing drugs or alcohol, getting clean and sober, like you have to hit your rock bottom where you realize you got to do something about your life. Mm-hmm. Until you realize it, all the people in the world telling you to get your shit together, it's not going to matter. It doesn't mean anything. You're just gonna you're gonna placate them. You know what, man? You're right. I'm done, man. I'm done. Done fucking using, man. I'm done. Meanwhile, as soon as you get away from them, you're calling up your dealer. Yeah. You know, um, Eddie Eddie Bravo had um, uh, an ex that had a, a meth problem. And he didn't know about it. And he found out about it uh, because uh, I think he, he was like, he, she didn't know he was home or something like that. And he was listening to a phone call. And he couldn't fucking believe it. Like, I think, I think that was what happened. But, like, when he listened to it, he was like, holy shit. Like, living with this chick, had no idea she was wow. doing meth. And then he leaves, and she's like, yeah, what do you got? You know, like, I, need, I need to get some. I need to get high, like, right now. I got, you know, like, what do you got? Like, and he was like, Whoa. what? And then he sort of figured it out and then confronted her, but didn't know, had no idea. And, you know, tell her, hey, you know, you got to stop doing this. Yeah, yeah, you're right. I'm fucking done. Done with that shit. Is he gone? Okay, good. I need to get some fucking (laughs) meth right now, okay? Not yesterday, not in an hour. I need it now. (laughs) And (laughs) until that person says, hey, I got to stop doing meth. I don't want to be this person. I'm I'm fucking, I'm going to test my will. I'm going to change my life. I'm going to steer this battleship. I'm going to figure out a way off the rocks. Until that person makes that decision, no movement's going to take place. You'll That's why I fucking hate talking with people when they start talking to me about losing weight and um you know, but you, I think what I'm going to do is just drop you know, I just I guess uh, I just eat late at night. Hey, 
Just fucking do it, man. Just stop. Don't talk to me because right. you're just jerking off in my face. That's what you're doing. This is a form of mental masturbation. You know, you're, you, you're, I, I, I get it. You're trying to look for inspiration. you you got to find it inside of you. We can have these conversations once, but if we have them twice and then three times and then four times and then I don't see you for six months and you're fatter, you can go fuck yourself, okay? I'm done. I'm not going to keep doing this, man. I'm not going to keep doing this. You know what you got to do. you got to find something. And I don't know if free will is real because there's, there's the big philosophical debate. Is there a free will? Isn't every decision you make based on a variety of things that include genetics, epigenetics, life experiences, you know, what path, going left as opposed to going right, what happened to you before you had any control over your life when you were a baby, your whole personality is formed by the time you were two, well, you start factoring on the get into that sort of philosophical debate, that's all good in the hood, that's all cool in the gang. But I know for a fact that some people change. So either you're going to be one of those motherfuckers that changes or you're not going to be one of those motherfuckers yeah. that changes. You can get philosophical all day long and say there is no free will. And, you know, I'm not going to do it because there's no free will. And, hey, I'm just happy what being What a good me. way to let yourself off the hook there. It's exactly what it is. You're being a bitch. And I'm here to let you know. That's what I'm here for. I'm the, I'm the being a bitch. You're being a bitch police. I'm here to yeah. let you know. You know, I think William James, because I was, you know, I studied a lot of philosophy, and his take on the free will argument was one of my favorites. And it's like, I don't know if there is free will or not, but my life is a hell of a lot better if I believe it is true. Mm. You know, and I'm going to be fucking making decisions for myself that are going to benefit my life, and I'm going to act sure as shit as if there is free will. Because just watch me. You know, and that was it. It was like, whatever you guys philosophers want to argue about, fine. That's cool. Mm. Good for you. But I'd say that there is just because it's better for me, and I'm going to fucking make shit happen. I know there is. You know how I know there is? Alarm clocks, bitch. It's that fucking simple. I exercise my will and determination with alarm clocks. Because when alarm clocks go off, I fucking get up. And I get up not just because, oh, I know I have no free will. This is just what I do. No, I, I do it on purpose. I know I do it. I know it's hard to do. I know I, know I do that. And I could just shut it off, you know? I could just fucking shut it off, sh- unplug the phone in the hotel, and sleep for a couple days if I wanted to. I'll fucking call everybody in a few days. They'll be fine. They'll freak out a little bit, but if I want to do that, I'll do it. That Yeah, you can do it. You can do whatever the fuck you want to do, man. I know, I know in a different way, and that's just from my own experiences of being, of separating myself from that auton- you know, that robotic mind mm-hmm. and just becoming that higher part of yourself. And that, that is the part of you that really does have free will. You know, there's this higher consciousness that can stop everything. Just say the whole thing, throw the fucking brakes on and then make some decisions, you know, and maybe there's winds that blow influences currents that are going to shape different ideas of thought. But man, when you're in that state and you can really feel connected to that, to that person driving your ship, you know there's free will because you can fucking feel it. There's something. You can decide to be a better person. Yep. You absolutely can. People have been doing it from the beginning of time. You can better yourself. And that's one of the reasons why inspirational people are so important because you can make choices based on inspiration. That is free will defined. The thing we're talking about, about being inspired by people, surrounding yourself with positive people, and using that positivity to reinforce your own life and inspire your own life. That is free will. That is free will broken down to its most beneficial aspect. The most beneficial aspect of free will is the ability to choose to better yourself, to Mm -hmm. be influenced by positive things, whether it's love or whatever it is. 
well, what if those things didn't happen? You don't, you wouldn't have free will because it's not free will. It's just you reacting to your environment. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Everybody says that's weak, by the way. You ever notice that? It's not a bunch of fucking savage champions yeah. that, that don't believe in free will. No, right. they all tell you you have to test your will. You have to test it. You know, and, and, and people who have never truly tested their will, if you never truly tried to run up that mountain with that 130-pound rock on your back, if you never really tried to do jiu-jitsu and, and tried to do battle with another skilled person for 20 fucking minutes where you're both, your heart's ready to explode in your chest and your fucking arms are made out of rubber, you don't know. You don't know about pushing yourself. You don't. You don't. You haven't, you haven't really t- tested yourself. You've just gotten in your car and driven to your cubicle every day and put in your hours, and then you want to talk shit. All right? But that's yeah. not how life works. The way life works is you get your shit-talking license when you accomplish something. Mm-hmm. And ironically speaking, once you've accomplished something, you're least likely to want to talk shit. <laughs> that's it. That's the irony of I mean, it all. But, and by talking shit, I mean bragging. And I mean, and there is there is recanting and re- recounting rather recounting special experiences um, that are fascinating. Whether I love talking to martial artists to talk about the greatest victories, I love sure. talking to, and it doesn't that doesn't mean they're bragging. It doesn't mean not, don't talk about accomplishments. But most people know the difference between enacting and and react reenacting experiences and pulling their lessons out of those experiences, and people who are just trying to pump themselves up. And when you're around someone who's just trying to pump themselves up, and they, they're bullshitting, and it's, it's a gross, oily feeling. It comes from a need deep yeah. inside to fill up some void they feel in their, own, in their own mind, in their own ego, in their own mindset. So that need requires positive reinforcement from other people, but that's going to be a vacuous hole that they're never going to fill. And so unless they've already conquered that, they're not going to be that good. Like you have to get past that to really be, you know, one of the true masters, unless there's a rare occasion where, you know, as we said before, someone's raw ability is just so unbelievably savage on another level that they do get to be ostensibly a champion you know, without actually having gone through it. I'm sure there are cases of that where someone is just so fucking gifted that they've gotten away with not actually facing the demons on the journey. But that's super rare. You well, know, I've I, never encountered it. I think in certain um, fight sports, it's actually possible to get incredibly proficient and not be a, a true master of yourself. Mike Tyson, I think, is one of the greatest examples ever. Mm-hmm. I mean, Mike Tyson has come out and said that he was on coke through a great part of his career. Like he was doing coke and fighting. I mean, and he was clearly out of control. Whether or not he raped that Desiree woman who was accused of raping, I don't know. I wasn't there. But whatever that was, you have to take into consideration a couple of things with, with that particular case. One, she had falsely accused someone of rape just a year before. Sure. So that's one. And, you know, two, she took her panty shield off when she got into the bathroom. Those, those, both of those things don't look so good for her. doesn't mean that she didn't say no and he didn't rape her. Okay, so... Who knows what actually did happen? But take away that one experience and just look at all the crazy shit that guy did. He was a maniac. He was buying Bentleys and Rolls Royces every day and punched Mick Green, Mick, Mitch Blood Green at a fucking Harlem haberdashery at 2 o'clock in the morning. And he wasn't living like some fucking stoic monk. You saw that show that he, that he put on? What was that? I didn't Tyson? see it. You did? It's no, pretty good. I heard it's amazing. It's awesome. My point is, he was the baddest motherfucker of all time while he was yep, doing all this craziness. Crazy. But the thing that he did do is insane amounts of work, insane intensity, insane focus and determination, and a deep, deep, deep knowledge of his craft. 
a mm. huge knowledge. I mean, the reason why he had that high top fade where he shaved the sides of his head, because that's what Jack Dempsey did. He watched Jack Dempsey from the time he was a fucking child, like constantly imitated and, and, and mimicked the, the movements of Jack Dempsey. Yeah. Got much better, in my opinion. He's way better than Jack Dempsey. Sure. When you watch Jack Dempsey move around, let's see if we can pull that up. Jamie, pull up a video of Jack Dempsey. This is a, a perfect example of how someone can be inspired by someone who sucks compared to them. <laughs> you know, because yeah, cause Tyson was just this spring loaded, like yeah. you took a piece of metal and you just fucking bent it back all well, the way. He was he was boxing when it hit this new incredible level where so many things were involved. First of all, there was decades and decades and decades, over a hundred years of knowledge when it came to you know what was effective, what was not effective. Mm-hmm. This is this is not a fight. This is like sparring. It's a lot of people this is a fight? watching sparring. No, it must be. Well, a lot of people would get to watch that guy train. Yeah, that's a fight. That's definitely a fight. Jack Dempsey was a fucking animal. Look at him. There he is. He's wailing on this motherfucker. Kind of punches like Bader Hari does now. <laughs> Just <laughs> a little bit. Everything into it. You. Yeah. Everything trying to crush you. He was a hard hitting motherfucker too, Jack Dempsey. Yeah. But Mike Tyson. Ah! Oh Jesus! And they they hovered over you back then after they knocked you down. That was, look how bloody that dude is. Oh shit, son! Back then when they um when they knocked you down, they stood over you, and every time you got up, they'd punch you again. No way. Yeah, they watch. He hovers over him. There was no standing eight counts back then. They would drop you, and then when you would get on one knee, and as soon as your knee t- lifted off the ground, they fucking punch you in the face again. Which, it sounds gangster, but look at MMA. MMA, you go to the ground, they fucking mount your face, <laughs> yeah, 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 punch yeah. you into oblivion. That's way crazier. <laughs> so it's funny that people are like, no way. They punched him in the head while they were down. Yeah, they, they, they hovered over you. you, do you what do you think about the idea that if they just took off all the gloves, it'd be safer. all these parts would be wasted? It, it's pretty, pretty scientifically clear, right? Now pull up um, Mike Tyson versus Marvis Frazier. This is... Uh, in my opinion, the the best version of uh, of Mike Tyson, the scariest version of Mike Tyson. When Mike Tyson fought Marvis Frazier, it was when he was on his way to the heavyweight title. He had not defeated Trevor Burbick yet, but he was on his way. But uh, just pull it pull it up so you could just see the fight because the fight only lasts for about fucking ten seconds. But he swarms that motherfucker in a way that, to this day, is the most terrifying beating I've ever seen anybody give anybody inside a boxing ring. Because Marvis Frazier had zero chance. He wasn't a hungry, evil fighter. He was the son of one of the greatest of all time and didn't really have it himself. And he was fighting a guy who was going to be the greatest heavyweight of all time in his greatest time when he's surging and coming up looking for a shot at the title. And he just corners Marvis Frazier here and just unfucking loads bing bing bang bang every punch is perfect massive amounts of torque and muscle behind every fist to his face and he, that one combination puts Marvis Frazier out of boxing for the rest of his life I mean he I think he boxed again after that but he was a shadow of himself Everyone knew he was never going to be the heavyweight champion, yeah. and he was never going to be able to beat this fucking monster. I mean, he, he didn't offer any resistance Ugh. whatsoever. And look at these combinations, how he's so accurate. See, that's way better than Jack Dempsey. See my, yeah. my point? It's like you look at Jack Dempsey, who inspired Mike Tyson, and Mike Tyson is fucking way better than Jack Dempsey. I mean, way, 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 way better. Sam Kinison was inspired by Lenny Bruce. But if you watch Lenny Bruce and watch Sam Kinison, you go, oh, Jesus Christ. Like, Lenny Bruce, if 
if you like try to watch it today as a 2014 comedian, like if he was a guy like this is a guy I heard about. His name's Lenny Bruce. He'd be like, oh my god, this guy's boring. He's so boring. He's saying obvious shit. But it wasn't obvious shit in 1950. Yeah, in 1950, it was fucking crazy, groundbreaking stuff. I mean, yeah. he was saying things that nobody had ever even thought you would hear on stage before. He was, and he was going to jail for them. And that guy went to jail countless times just for profanity, just for just speaking his mind and, and talking about the, 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 the language that we use. I mean, he would use profanity in talking about how odd it is that we have these restrictions on language. You hear so many people talk about how they're building off the, the backs of the giants from, from times ago, you know, mm-hmm. from whatever whatever it is in science and art and in sport and all of that you know you build off of what is created before and and make it generally you know better you get to take what they knew and the best people do this take what they knew take how far they went and then take it even farther you know and then then you think about some things like you look at Graham Hancock's work and then you wonder well what happens if everything just gets fucking taken away and you have to start over. What if all the UFC tapes completely went out of people's consciousness? This whole generation, it's only 25 years, this generation gets wiped out, a new one comes up, they got to figure that shit out all over again. Mm-hmm. And, they're and gonna, they would. And they're going to suck for a long time. For a long time. You know, because they're not going to have that that to build off of. Whereas now, you know, people are just going to get more and more efficient and and capable at this art. Yeah, if people had to figure out how to do a wheel kick from scratch... Oh, yeah. And land it, spin, they, and hit someone in the head with your heel. It would take forever for them to even think of it, you know? Yeah. I mean, it would take a long time. Or do you, the idea that you could kick someone in the face. Uh-huh. You could pick up your leg and kick someone in the face. Like, what? No, you can kick them when they're down. <laughs> or you can kick them when they're up here. Get out of here. That's not <laughs> even fucking possible. And then you yeah. show the Donald Cerrone video, and you're like, get the fuck out of here. How did he figure that out? <laughs> he fucking hit him with his shin. Mm-hmm. Whoa! And people who don't do martial arts, sometimes uh, um, I have friends that have come to the UFC and they, they have no idea what he did to the guy. Like uh, Steve Rinella, this guy was, uh, this guy, um, uh, uh, Bagutinov, was uh, fighting this dude who was going for uh, this John Lineker. John Lineker was going for a leg lock on Bagutinov, and it was at the end of the fight. But Bagatinov is this sambo master, and Lineker is more of a striker than anything. His mm-hmm. jiu-jitsu is sort of so-so. And so Bagatinov was, like, laughing that this guy was trying to heel-hook like him. waved his finger So he stood like up. He's standing there while Lineker is uh, going after his leg. He's not even defending the leg lock, and he's, like, oh, going like this, like standing there and flexing. <laughs> and it's ridiculous yeah. because, you know, like, and so my friend was like, how did he hold that guy down? <laughs> and Ranella thought that Bagutinov was holding him down with his leg. He was pinning him with his like leg. A full champion pose. I'm like, like. Yeah, I'm like, no, he wasn't actually pinning him with his leg. He's like, why was that guy pinning that guy with his leg? But that for a person who doesn't ever sure. do martial, <clears throat> excuse me, martial arts, they look at some shit and they don't know what's happening. They're like, mm-hmm. they're like, how do you hit him with a shin? What the heck? That guy, he, he flipped around and he hit the guy with his shin? Like, they couldn't even recreate it. If you showed someone and they didn't have any knowledge of martial arts at all, and you showed them Edson Barboza versus Terry Edom, where Edson Barboza hits him with this wheel kick from hell. Like, one of the worst wheel kicks I've ever seen anybody absorb in any combat sport ever. I mean, the guy just got... Terry Edom looked like he got shot. Like, he got shot with a sniper. Just boom! <laughs> stiffens up and, and down, like his head exploded. If you show that to somebody, they'd be like, what did he do? 
What's he f- flipped around through the air? The guy flew through the air <laughs> and he hit him with his foot. You know, like yeah, how did he hit him with sure. his foot? Like a crazy, like a just jumping through the air. Like you wouldn't even know. What I the saw guy that did. happen actually when I think it was Hoist Gracie. Here it is, was... right here. Here it is, right here. Look Uh-oh. at this. Shoot. Boom! Uh-oh. Are you fucking kidding me? Like a sniper rifle. That doesn't. You don't ever land a more perfect wheel kick. Boom! Look at that. I mean, that shit is flawless Ugh. technique. And they hit him in the perfect spot, and he hit him as Adam is moving forward. Like, Adam steps to him, and he just runs right into that heel. I saw that thing happen. I think it was Hoist Gracie fighting. Maybe it was Dan Severn or somebody, but the big guy was on top of Hoist. Hoist and Dan Severn, he triangled him. And he triangled him. And I I had a bunch of people over at the house. My family loved these things. We watched them from the start. And people were like... What the fuck happened? What the fuck happened? Like, they couldn't possibly imagine that the guy on top, the big guy on top, gave up. Why? Why? How did this? What? I don't get it. I don't get it. You mean you can be on top and lose? Yeah. You know, it was like full mayhem. Nobody understood it at all. It didn't no make fucking any sense. clue. Yeah. It's like, what, his legs were around the guy's neck? Yeah. He make him suck his cock? <laughs> did he make him suck his cock? That, any theory was valid at that yeah. point. Nobody knew. I remember watching UFC 2 was the first one that I ever watched. I watched it on videotape. It was a VHS tape. And uh, I had just come to Hollywood. It was in like 94. And I was out here doing TV. And I saw um, at the video store they had like UFC 2. Was a, mm-hmm. I don't even think UFC 1 was available. There was some sort of licensing issue. Mm-hmm. You could only rent UFC 2 at the time. And so uh, I got a hold of it and I watched it. And I had been a martial artist since I was a, a, a young boy. So watching this, all of a sudden I was like, oh my God. Like everything I know is useless. <laughs> I was like, I mean, I really had this feeling like if that guy got a hold of me, I'm fucking gonna get strangled, <laughs> just like this big giant guy. Like yeah. he's, he's fucking up these big giant guy. He armbarred chemo. Yeah. You know, he's he's fucking up these guys that are like way bigger than me that I wouldn't want to fight. I'm like, whoa, how's he doing that? Like the guy was my size. He was 170 pounds at the time. Mm-hmm. And I was like, how the fuck is he beating these guys? Immediately, I was like, I gotta learn jujitsu. Yeah. And then as soon as I went to jujitsu. I got mauled over and over and over again. Like, it just it completely got my ass kicked, where I thought, like, well, I've been a martial artist for, you know, fucking long time. When I get in there, I'm going to learn easier than most people. No. <laughs> no. No, 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 no. You're not going to go in there with any... I had a little bit of wrestling from high school, so that helped a little bit. I kind of knew about manipulating bodies and I knew about leverage, leverage but I didn't know any of the techniques I didn't know what was going on especially with the gi dudes were just grabbing my collar and I'm like what's going on here <laughs> and I like twisting it around my neck and fucking holding onto it to put my arm in a position when they could snap it in half and you're like oh god I'm so vulnerable mm-hmm. like just leaving there feeling like fuck I'm so vulnerable I didn't know it was as vulnerable I thought it was way tougher than this <laughs> Yeah, changes changes the world. Everything. <clears throat> These techniques, you don't even know what a guy's doing to you, and all of a sudden, you, and when it's happening to you, it's even more confusing because you can't see what's going on sometimes when you're getting strangled or when you're getting armbarred. Like, because there's a, a mass of legs and arms and tangle, and you're trying to grapple, and all of a sudden, this legs over across your face. You're not even seeing what's happening, and you're getting armbarred. You're not sure. 
especially in the beginning. You don't recognize the dangerous positions. You don't know when to defend or even how to defend. So when you get stuck in these spots, it's literally a mystery while your arm is screaming in pain. <laughs> like, why is my fucking yeah. shoulder? Ow! <laughs> what the fuck happened there? My shoulder. Why is my hand behind my back? Ah! <laughs> <laughs> I remember I grappled Marvio Charles, who was like a jiu-jitsu silver medalist and someone in, in Brazil. I was in Florianopolis. And I go to just, I was there, so I was like, all right, well, fuck, I'll grapple with somebody really good. So I go there, and I'd never really wrestle with, grapple with somebody who had a good butterfly guard, like a really good one. Mm. And I was just floating along, getting armbarred and choked constantly. Like I <laughs> felt like I never fucking got to the ground. You know, it was just pushing and pulling mm-hmm. and lifting and flip. I was like, this is a fucking new level. Yeah. You know, this is a whole new game. Especially with the gi. Yeah. Because with the gi, they can hold on to your collars. Yeah. And they hold on, hold on to the end of your uh, your sleeves, and you know those two things: one hand on the collar, one hand on the sleeve. Man, you're both going hands on, both feet under your hips. Feet <laughs> under your hips, so you're flying up in the air. So you got one arm completely locked out. You're trying to defend with this arm. Jesus yeah. Christ, this arm's <laughs> your fucking neck is turned sideways. This guy's got a forearm across your neck, holding on tight to your collar. It's like you had a video of what yeah. happened to me. That was it. Right oh, there. dude, I've been there. Jean-Jacques does <laughs> that, that to it. me still, and I'm a black belt. <laughs> I roll with Jean-Jacques. I'm up in the air, man. Yeah. When you you know, you know feel someone who's really good at getting those butterfly guards in and flipping you here and there, it's a skill that you develop, the ability to lift someone up and manipulate them. And a lot of people don't understand how high a level the top-level jiu-jitsu guys have achieved because you only see jiu-jitsu in MMA. And jiu-jitsu in MMA is a lot, it's actually like less advanced than kickboxing in MMA because there's some, there's some really like high-level kickboxing that you see occasionally in MMA with elite fighters. And it's also kickboxing in MMA is a tad more dangerous than kickboxing and kickboxing because the gloves are smaller. Mm-hmm. You can't protect the same way like kickboxing. They can they can go in this shell. They have this like uh, Badahari is really good at that. Mm-hmm. He holds up real high with this shell, and they move forward and they throw kicks and punches to come back to that shell. But that shell in MMA punches still get they through. Slip through. They slip and and one will do you in. It's not like a boxing punch with that big glove. It's a different sort of a thunderous effect that a really hard puncher with an MMA glove has on. But when there's no striking, then you get to see what real high-level jiu-jitsu is all about. And you get to see a guy like a Jacare or a Hodger Gracie or Crone Gracie or Marcelo Garcia, these super, super high-level guys going at it. And you get to see jiu-jitsu that is on a level that you almost never see when there's you know, punches involved and kicks involved. So to someone who doesn't know like, what really high-level jiu-jitsu looks like, when you, you know, you, say, you think you kind of have an idea of what the baseline is. Well, you know, I've seen Anderson Silva tap out Chael Sonnen on the ground, so I'm pretty sure I know what jiu-jitsu looks like. You really don't, because Anderson Silva gets tapped out if he goes to jiu-jitsu tournaments. Yeah. I mean, there's a video of him getting tapped out while he was a champion. He got armbarred. Yeah. And that's just that's the way of the world, man. There's, there's another level. The level, the super, super high-level jiu-jitsu is uh, it's fucking wild to watch, because these guys are masters and they're ninjas and they're hitting these high speed moves and countering these moves and you you can watch guys like really like technical guys and you're watching these wild rolls and it's like jesus christ it's you know it's it's such a beautiful thing that all of these arts kind of got a testing ground and Mm. i wish it could be applied to other things because just in the way that the ufc 
made people take the very best from everything, the very best from karate, the very best from taekwondo, the very best from jiu-jitsu, wrestling, all these different things, judo. Everybody contributed a little piece to the puzzle. Some pieces way bigger. Obviously, jiu-jitsu's piece of the pie was a big fucking meaty piece of the pie. Mm. You know, but everything had a little point, you know, except for maybe some weird kung fus that probably contributed maybe only the tiniest little sliver of something. I don't know. But and then in life, people are still, because there isn't that proving ground with like philosophies and meditation techniques and yoga, yoga schools, they get so rigid in defending their way, their dogma of what they think, you know, this is the only way. Just like martial artists used to be. My dojo is the only way. It's the deadly arts, blah, blah, blah. You know, it's, it's a shame that there isn't some way to really have that kind of intercourse where you test every different skill and just use what works. But... You know, I think we can do that ourselves anyways. And I think that's the right philosophy. Take a little bit from all of these great religious philosophies, these schools of thought, Buddhism, Zen, Hinduism, Christianity, Judaism, Islam. Everybody has a little verse. Some might be fatter piece of the pie for you than others, but everything has some way to contribute to this and all these other techniques. You know, if you like transcendental meditation, okay, maybe that's a big piece, but maybe try some of the other meditation cycles. Or if you like Bikram yoga, okay, that can be a piece, but try these other things too. The same thing needs to be applied across the fucking board. But because there's no way for these people to battle and for people to ostensibly see it and prove it, it doesn't happen. And you get stuck back in 1970s martial arts where everybody's defending their stupid dojo mm-hmm. when really the best way is a little bit of everything. Is there a lot of like uh, that, that sort of uh, ideology when it comes to f- uh, yoga? Like Fuck yeah, yoga? Bikram yoga. It's like that. Wasn't well, like that guy hundred... crazy though? Yeah, he's crazy. He wears gold chains. But isn't he like accused of like a bunch of sexual assault? I have no idea. I have no no personal knowledge of Pull, Mr. pull that Bikram. up, Jamie, because I know that Bikram yoga guy. I, know I did that talk to the guys. Hold on. <laughs> I did talk I to some guys who knew him. It's in front of me. But yeah, those guys, they're so rigid about that being the only way, and it's 18 postures, and it's at this fucking degree temperature, and everything else is bullshit. You're like, uh, okay, if you say so. But I kind of like doing some other shit, too. Sexual harassment scandal rocks yoga community after Bikram, the dude's name is Bikram Chudhori, I don't know if I'm saying that right, is slapped with a lawsuit. And there's a, apparently the dude drives Bentleys and shit. And yeah, he wears he's big a super baller. Yeah. <laughs> he's a super baller. Uh, he seems like he's a handsome guy. He's probably got mad yoga pussy. <laughs> Imagine the yoga pussy that guy gets with his little Speedos on, doing stretches with chicks. And it's all about releasing and pressure yeah. and, and positions and just sliding it into your pussy. Oh, <laughs> oh. Look at him there with two hot chicks. He probably fucked both of them. He probably did splits and fucked them. <laughs> Who was he standing on a chick in that one? Yeah, that's insane. Wow. Let Joey Diaz try that. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not impressed. I'm impressed with his age, though. The guy's 67 years old. He's still getting sexual harassment. That means he's still active. Congratulations. He's got a good... Yoga. It's yoga. (laughs) Fucking asshole. This is a sexual harassment. He's got good kundalini energy, Joe. Good kundalini. What a fucking shithead It's clean. It's clear. He must be a real shithead. He started Bikram in the early 70s, and now it's turned into this gigantic fucking huge movement. It's really good, though. That's the problem with Bikram yoga. I mean, as much of a piece of shit as this guy may or may not be. I never met him, obviously. I mean, who knows? These people who are saying he sexually harassed them, they could be fucking nuts. You don't know. I don't know. But, you know, the guy, it's, it's been around. Yeah, it's good. 
I mean, it's but got, there's also, a benefit to it. There's some other really good hot yoga too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's like, well, there's so, so many positions in yoga, and the thing about Bikrams is they have this very specific routine that they yep. take you through. It's very specific. It's fucking great. Don't get me wrong, I, I love it. I mean, it's it's an amazing, amazing workout, and it's amazing for your your thought process and your mind. He likes standing on bitches. Look at him. <laughs> that's fucking weird. In the Christ pose. Yeah. No, I think that's Warrior One or something. No. That's fucking Christ pose. <laughs> I know a warrior one when I see it. Warrior six. I've definitely not seen yeah, warrior, warrior six. Stand on a bitch. Yeah. Get, hit the Christ pose and fuck her. Guy looks good for warrior 67, six. though, man. Must be something to that yoga shit. I mean, I don't Look know how him. old he is. He's constantly standing on chicks. Standing and not only that, he wears the grossest Speedos. Yeah. He's like uh, 200 pounds from looking like a sumo wrestler. No, I think he's a tiny guy. I think this is an illusion because he's standing on a small woman. <laughs> I don't think he's very big at all. You know, he's he's really skinny and, you know, super flexible. I wonder if Why doesn't he ever stand on any dudes? Rude. To kick his ass. Guy weighs <laughs> eight pounds. Because he doesn't want to fuck the dudes, too. He stands on you, puts his stinky feet all over your neck, you're more likely to let him slip uh, his dick inside you. Is that the way it goes? That's what I think yeah, in my makes little sense. fantasy world that I just created <laughs> with him banging all these chicks for real. I don't know makes what the sense. real story is. He says he's disappointed in the false charges made in this lawsuit, but will not comment at this time. <laughs> I'm disappointed. That's my bad Indian accent. Sounded very, was. very kind of old very martial vague, arts movie. Very vague. Yeah. Very vague accent. <laughs> but this, yeah, I, Bikram is a, is a very, uh, in you know, very involved there's a sure. lot going on with that whole Bikram movement, you know. People yeah. loved they love to follow those poses. Yeah, and you know, and that's and that's fine. And that can be a big fucking piece of your yoga puzzle. You like that? Cool. There's nothing wrong with that. But don't shit on other people who are finding their own way to do it. And maybe learn something from them too. And you know, try that every once in a while. Maybe every fucking fourth session you try something new. You ever you do know? yoga on um pot? I have. It's really good. It's that's incredible. actually one of the best physical activities to do on pot in my opinion is the best to me yeah. that and jujitsu but it's it's right up there with jujitsu yeah. because uh you feel everything in this weird super sensitive way especially eating it mm-hmm. when you eat it and go through all those yoga movements mckenna believed that that terence mckenna believed that that's uh r- really what yoga was all about he said it was all about how to eat ha- how to eat cannabis like he he believed really? that yeah he believed that the or- original origins of yoga were like a cannabis optimization uh, exercise <laughs> makes so sense. Blink. I mean, I naturally, when I smoke or eat, want to stretch. Generally, yeah. mm-hmm. you know, even if I'm not even thinking feels about good. yoga, it feels good. <laughs> and your body's aware of what's body. what's you know your your areas that need work. I want to stretch, and if my teeth are dirty, I want to brush my teeth. You yeah. know, those are the things yeah. that I feel like when I get my high. feet stink. I want to get in the shower. <laughs> right, you don't want to be stinky feet when you're high. Yeah. Hey, uh, pull up that video of the drug czar getting yelled at because I want to I want to hear that. I want to hear what was people because this is not something that would have even happened um, a few years ago. This is uh, this is some new shit, and I'm going to pee because I've been drinking too much water. With all due respect to the my fellows on the other side, uh, that schizophrenia, which my father was a psychiatrist and taught me something about, could be described as a party that talks about saving money all the time and being concerned with deficits and being totally driven by that but not being concerned and saving money when people are in jail for marijuana and mandatory minimums that judges have said were awful and for nonviolent 
first-time offenders who are serving lifetime sentences in jail, costing us $30,000 a year, and the population of jails has gone up 800 percent in the last 30 years. That's schizophrenia. You're concerned about cost and cutting costs, but not when it's jailing a population. Mr. Botticelli, your hands are tied on, on Schedule 1, but it is ludicrous, absurd, crazy to have marijuana in the same level as heroin. Ask the late Philip Seymour Hoffman if you could. Nobody dies from marijuana. People die from heroin. And every second that we spend in this country trying to enforce marijuana laws is a second that we're not enforcing heroin laws. And heroin and meth are the two drugs that are ravaging our country. And every death, including Mr. Hoffman's, is partly the responsibility of the federal government's drug priorities for not putting total emphasis on the drugs that kill, that cause people to be addicted and have to steal to support their habit. And heroin and meth is where all of your priorities should be. Heroin is getting into the arms of young people. And when we put marijuana on the same level as heroin and LSD and meth and crack and cocaine, we are telling young people not to listen to the adults about the ravages and the problems, and they don't listen because they know you're wrong. With all due respect, you should be listening to scientists. I understand the parents who are grieved because their child died of an overdose. They didn't overdose on marijuana. And you're listening to them rather than the scientists? Mr. Botticelli, it may go back to A Few Good Men, the movie, Jack Nicholson. You can't handle the truth. The truth is the drug war failed. Your direction on marijuana is a failure. Get to dealing and saving kids from heroin overdoses. Now, you talked about alcohol, and I may, you may have gotten to this. Cirrhosis of the liver, pretty serious thing. Violence against spouses and women. People don't smoke marijuana and beat up their wives and girlfriends. They get drunk, sometimes they beat up their wives and girlfriends. Maybe the reason there's so many more people smoking marijuana now is because they're not listening. And maybe they're doing the other drugs too. But it also shows that the drug war has been a failure. It's been a serious failure. Boom. That was an ass kicking. Not only that, it's a guy from Tennessee. Mm-hmm. Representative of Tennessee. Yep. And, and you would think like one of the most conservative states in the country. And he's Bible 100. Belt. And yeah. He's old as fuck too. Yeah. That's fucking positive yeah. sign. I like yeah. that. Yeah. I like it. it. Well, it's 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 unavoidable at this point in time. It's it's gotten to this point where there's so much information, there's so much so many studies have been done, so much knowledge. That occasionally they'll, they'll throw out a study, uh, you know, some link to schizophrenia or something like that. Horse shit. If there was a link to schizophrenia and marijuana, everybody would be schizophrenic because everyone's smoking weed. I mean, I don't mean any, everyone, but I mean goddamn a lot of people. Yeah. You know, the thing that's so fucking incredibly frustrating and infuriating is as part of the criteria for Schedule 1, the drug has to have no medicinal benefit. N-O medicinal benefit. And countless fucking medicinal benefits are being shown by a lot of these drugs. 
I mean, the success rate of them testing things and getting positive results, it's only been recent they've been able to get access to things like psilocybin and even the marijuana studies that they've been able. They still hardly are ever able to even work with marijuana. It's one of the toughest ones to work with, talking to the people at MAPS. But every, you know, they're testing these things, and it's coming back amazingly positive. You watch something like that Sanjay Gupta completely reversing his policy because he watched some kid who was on... 14 fucking pharmaceuticals that were going to kill her. And then she smokes weed because she had epilepsy, smokes weed that has high CBD and is doing better than she ever has in her life. And he's like, okay, I'm fucking, I was a dickhead. I was a doctor, but now I know what fucking happened. Well, good for him true. because he was saying a lot of really dumb yeah, shit about And even he fucking he switched got, his, you yeah. look at the facts and you can't help but change your opinion that there is medicinal benefit, period. You cannot leave it in that criteria. It's yeah, insane. It's almost like the perfect question. It's almost like, how fucked up is this culture? We're going to give this culture this amazing plant that grows easily, has no issues with toxicity, doesn't kill anybody. Also, you can eat it. It provides you with all the essential amino acids. It's very high in protein. And you can get high on it, and when you get high on it, it makes you introspective, it makes you more sensitive, it makes food actually taste more delicious, it makes sex feel better, makes your body feel more sensitive, and it can help you with glaucoma, and it makes the best paper, and it makes the... You just run this laundry list of shit. You're like, there's no way that could be illegal. It's the most illegal thing. <laughs> it's the most illegal thing in our crazy country. It's like the perfect question to find out how insane our society it's is. Like an Do insane, we have it's an insaneometer. One thing that we can say is the most beneficial plant on earth. It's the marijuana plant. That's the one. And that's that's schedule one drug, illegal, the most illegal amongst the most yeah, illegal it's things fucking you can buy. Dings. It's like at the circus where you hit that thing with a mallet and it goes all the way to the top. That goes all the way to the top of the crazy meter. But stop Make and think about illegal. how nuts it is that that same drug is also now legal in two states. Like the, these, two, these states have gotten so fed up, Washington and Seattle, both two of the most awesome spots in the country. They've gotten, or Washington and uh, Colorado, mm -hmm. they've gotten to this point where they're like, you know what, fuck you. It's legal, okay? We say it's legal. In our state, it's legal. Not only that, we, you can sell it. In Colorado, they're going gangster. In Seattle, they're like watching Colorado going, what's going to happen there? But in Colorado, they're just fucking selling it, selling it like crazy. And then the government's like, yeah, well, you can't put the money in the banks then. And then eventually, they re have revisited that and said, okay, we're going to let people use the banks. Because yeah. it's so much fucking money. There's so much money. Like, what, you're going to keep that money out of the banks? Are the banks fucking failing? Don't the banks need money? What are you guys doing? Like, you go to this emerging industry, and you better look at it as an industry now, because now it's proven itself. They made a million dollars in the first fucking hour when they were selling marijuana in Colorado. They were just fucking going off. And it's only like 12 stores. And one day, they made a million bucks. Yeah, this is, this is a really encouraging sign. I mean, I think once you start to see water pouring through the dam like this, yeah. it's going to it's gonna break the dam. The more they resist it and don't go along with it, it's just going to fucking, it's going to crack it. I mean, it's, it's just I'm information. really excited. It's too much information. Yeah. There's too much absolute, irrefutable information. And the, th the cool thing about these states is, you know, if you have real good states' rights, the ability for states to regulate a lot of these things, 
it's going to be a great way to ensure that some of these draconian, crazy, bullshit laws don't get passed because some states are going to wake up. You know, in this big nationwide consciousness, it's easier to kind of get enough dummies circled together from everywhere to block something. But, you know, in one state, you know, you have a lot of more flexibility to actually spread information, create a new kind of vibe and create new rules like they decided they're not supposed to be able to do that. They're not supposed to be able to say weed is legal, but they just said, we're just fucking doing it. You know, I don't care if the federal laws say you can't, we're going to do it. And maybe you could come in with the feds and cause trouble, but you know, we're going to take that risk. And I think putting a lot more rights like that back to the states is, is the way to go. Oh, it's af- absolutely. The re- I mean, that's the whole reason why the whole state situation was set up in the first place. And yep. states' rights are supposed to supersede yeah. the federal rights. It's, or, or laws, rather. They're supposed to su- supersede the federal laws. And I think we're also seeing this overwhelming wave of information starting to shift the way they interact with us and the way they're forced to deal with certain situations when it comes to uh, world events, like Syria, for, for example. When Obama went on TV and was talking about military action for Syria, the whole world went, Boo! Yeah. Boo! You what? You have to do what? Why? Because somebody poisoned people? Do you know what you've done? Do you know a million people are dead in Iraq? Do you know how many people you killed from drones that had nothing to do with the person you were trying to kill? Shut the fuck up. No, you don't have to go to Syria. No, it's not important we invade Syria. And then they stopped talking about it. When was the last time you heard Syria in the news? Nope. When was the last time you saw Syria on CNN? When was the last time you saw Syria on Fox News where they were saying the, the invasion is imminent, the imminent invasion of Syria? No, 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 no. It's all gone. People don't want that. Yeah. And that's the thing. That's another thing that people get frustrated with how spineless the politicians are. But in another way, it's kind of encouraging. They really <laughs> have no fucking backbone. Yeah. If we really mount up and say, no, that's bullshit. Don't do that. We're, that's, we're fucking, we're over it. And we do that in mass like people did for Syria. They'll just say, okay, cool. Because they're going to survive, too. And to survive, they have to get elected, you know? And I know, oh, vote rigging, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, all right. Maybe they push things a little bit. But if it's fucking in mass, you know, they're going to go along with the tide. We just got to create the tide and, and make enough motion ourselves unified that they have to listen. And I think we've done that with weed. It's going to continue to keep going that way. And we can do that with a lot of other shit, too. Yeah, as long as the, there's truth in what we're saying. Yeah. And the marijuana truth is something that seems so impossible and improbable. There's so much from the moment that it was made illegal, from the whole conspiracy to make it illegal by a guy who was a paper manufacturer and owned newspapers, William Randolph Hearst. If you read the story of how marijuana was made illegal, I won't bore you with the details because I've told it on this podcast too many times, but... It's a guy who owned newspapers. Mm-hmm. He made a bunch of fucking stories up, and that's how weed became illegal. And when they made weed illegal, they didn't even know they were making hemp illegal. Now, they recently passed this farm bill. Did you see this? Mm-hmm. Where they're going to allow states that make hemp growing legal to grow it at universities. So the universities are going to be allowed to grow hemp. So in a, in a way, it's sort of making hemp start to become legal. And I don't know if that's for commercial application. I don't, I don't know like, what they're going to be able to do with the hemp. But that's even dumber than the weed law. If you thought the weed law was bad, this hemp thing is even fucking crazier. Because it is legal. Yeah. You just can't grow it. 
which is so fucking stupid. I hear you. I'm and, importing a bunch of hemp over <laughs> fucking the Canadian border every every month. We're getting I mean, hemp seeds from Canada because we can't grow it. It's insane. Do we have shitty soil? No, we don't have shitty soil. Our soil is great. It could grow weed like fucking anybody else in the world, but nope, we can't do it. So many farmers would profit. So many farmers would benefit. Just like you're seeing this economic boom in Colorado because of these people being able to sell marijuana. Look at that. Pot shops in Denver open door to four hundred seventy-eight, five hundred seventy-eight million dollars in sales. <gasps> that's for a year. Yeah, but whatever. Yeah, no. Five hundred seventy-eight million dollars, and that's just the beginning. That's just the tip of the iceberg. Those states are gonna be balling from ballin'. the revenue from that. Balling. <laughs> They're gonna be fucking have cool public areas and parks and art. The states are gonna get cooler and cooler and cooler until finally everybody's like. Fuck, man. We got to move to one of these cool states. They got the best parks. They got the best fucking public works. Everything's working smooth because they got money and everybody's happy. And, and that's what's generally going to happen. And then the neighboring state's going to be like, God damn, Colorado's fucking got it going on. Mm-hmm. You know, in fucking Idaho. I think Idaho borders Colorado, right? Idaho's going to be like, well, fuck this. You know, we're not going to let Colorado be the ones that, to win. So it's going to create this ripple effect where, you know, I think it's going gonna, it's gonna to spread. I fucking love Colorado. Mm-hmm. I just love it. I love that they were the first, you know, them and Washington State. But just Colorado is just, it's such a fucking gangster cowboy state, you know? It's like, it's such a weird combination of, like, Western pioneer people who moved there and really cool people who stayed, you know? It's like everybody else was going to California, and the people that stopped in Colorado went, wait, 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 wait. Can we just stay here? Like, why don't we just stay? Why are you guys going to keep going west, yeah, yeah, man? Yeah. Do you see how beautiful it is here? Do you really think over there is better? I mean, what, what, come on, man. What's, listen, go over there. Make sure you send me a letter. Tell me how groovy it is. I'll be right here. <laughs> that's like, for sure. When you find a place that's unbelievably physically beautiful, like Colorado, I always think that for some reason that is going to accumulate a lot of intelligent and cool people. Because there's a benefit in having beauty around you. There's a reason why people spend so much money on art. Why do people dress so nice? Why do people have nice cars? Is Do they have nice cars to drive? Or do they have nice cars to look at? Well, it's not just to drive. Because if it was just to drive, every car would look like a rock on the outside. Right. And inside of it would just be this you know, really opulent, luxurious thing that made you feel good as a, as a passenger. No, you don't, most people don't even worry about what the inside looks like. You look at the inside of their car, they got fucking jack-in-the-box wrappers <laughs> on the ground, fucking That's empty so soda cans, and Starbucks yeah. is flopping around their cup holder. They're not worried at all about the inside, but the outside is polished and shiny. Yeah. Ding! Why is it? Because when you look at things that are beautiful, they give you a feeling. They give you a good feeling. That's why, you know, when you're taking your woman out and, you know, you go, you ready? And she's like, yeah. And she steps out and you look at her and you're like, whoa, you look great. Mm-hmm. Like, whoo, this feeling, this, oh, this yeah. feeling of, of observing <laughs> beauty, you know? Hopefully you do that. I mean, you might be, might be unfortunate in that regard. But <laughs> if you are fortunate in that regard, if you live in a neighborhood where there's beautiful trees and you see the sunset and you see it, you know, poking through these trees and you look over at the lake and it's fucking beautiful and you see a fish jump and you're like, Wow, like that it's hitting you. It's energy. There's a lot of and when you live where that is, you're probably like a little on the ball or at, yeah. at the, the very least you're inspired by all this stuff being around you, inspired by all this beauty. Yeah, the influence it definitely makes a difference, you know. You look at I think landscape really plays a bigger part than people give credit. I mean, mm-hmm. you look at some of the the hardest, harshest places and they're dry as fuck generally. You know, like as far as from the from a kind of philosophical and religious and kind of 
an area that's really difficult. You know, some of the some of the worst kind of ideas. It's not always the case, but you see a lot in like really challenging environments that are really fucked up. You get people who are really kind of obstinate in a lot of their ways of thinking, where in the really kind of beautiful regions like Nepal versus China, you know, when you're around that kind of awe-inspiring, it's not that often that you see really crazy, you know, kind of philosophies that come up. I don't know if it's the people move to that or whether the environment actually itself kind of has some impact on on the psychology of the people who live around it. And there's also, of course, people that go to areas where there unbelievable, there's unbelievable beauty and exploit them. Europeans, sure. you know, how many people have gone to the jungle and exploited the Amazon, the indigenous people? How many people have found resources in these strange, beautiful places and just fucked over tribe members? You know, McKenna was talking about this um, slaughter in the Amazon where, uh, I forget what which country, where they were um, killing people for rubber. When they found out about rubber, it was like in the early mm-hmm. uh, early 20th century. And they were going in there and um, giving these people, like, you had to have, you had to bring back this amount of rubber every day. And if you didn't, they would cut that amount of weight that's missing off in human flesh. So they slaughtered these people. I mean, they, they killed thousands and thousands of these people. At one point in time, you know, they had over 100,000 people in this in, in this area. And then they were down to just a couple thousand by the time um, whoever the fuck rescued them. However, this was uh, stopped. I don't recall the entire story, but this the concept of giving them a quota and then removing that same amount in flesh if they didn't reach that quota, Jesus. cutting people's arms off, cutting pe- and doing it in front of everybody to make sure that these people were absolutely terrified would go out and people are capable of horrible, horrible things. But my point is that when they're not, when society's stable, when you're not dealing with that sort of evil invader you know, Mongol invasion type situation. When you're in a place that's beautiful, a lot of times the people there are pretty cool. Yeah, I I tend to find the same thing. And it's interesting how, you know, some places really do trigger that over others. You know, there's no... Beach communities. Yeah. Then there's... You just know when you're in a special place. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't know what it... I, the whole beauty concept is interesting. You know, like, why is that one place? Like, why is looking out over the mountains in Colorado more beautiful than, you know, the cedar trees in Texas. I live in Texas, and mm-hmm. I'm never really inspired by the beauty of the Texas fucking hill country. It's nice. I like it. I love Texas. I love living there. But it's not the same as when I go to, like, a beautiful beach or I go to a beautiful mountain or I go even up. There's even beautiful, like, desert landscapes that I've loved. But it's funny how there's something that just goes and hits the right buttons in the brain mm-hmm. and says, this is beautiful. You know, yeah. I know they've studied that with people. With people, it's some form of symmetry and health. And but with nature, it's even kind of more curious. It's just more, maybe more like there's a life force or an order to it. I think we like order. You know, mm-hmm. we're, maybe we're part of that creating force. And when we do that, we like to look at things that look like they're ordered and organized by some kind of presence. Or maybe something. I don't know. We were also trying to figure out the other day because uh, one of my sponsors is One Eight Hundred Flowers. We're trying to figure out <clears throat> why flowers are so fucking beautiful. I mean, what is it about flowers? What what evolutionary advantage is there to being enthralled by these powerful colors, tulips and roses, and it's like, ah. Oh. But if you see a beautiful bouquet of flowers, man, there's a feeling that it gives you, mm-hmm. this feeling of, like, admiration of nature's artwork. It's like, wow, it's a yeah. beautiful thing. And I it's think the same Huck- feeling as a, a mountain or something. Yeah, it is. Huxley had, a, Huxley had an idea that... 
these visions that you see in the psychedelic experiences are generally very colorful and vibrant. He did a lot of cactus medicines like mescaline and, and things like that. And so the colors get really intensely vibrant and visual and bright. And he was saying that we find beautiful those things that mimic what we see in, in that form of experience. You know, So like in a DMT trip, you know, the colors are out of this world or ayahuasca trip. The colors are so vibrant and yeah. beautiful and amazing. And they come in a lot of these, What they, they actually call it the chrysanthemum, which is named after a flower, mm-hmm. because they come in these kaleidoscopic patterns of things that actually do look like a flower. So I think there may be something to that theory. Maybe in whatever realm beyond that you're accessing or whatever nether regions of your mind, if you don't want to go to realm beyond, there's some ideal of what you see there. And, it, and looking at a flower like a beautiful blue chrysanthemum reminds you of that, even if it's subliminally and you don't haven't had a psychedelic experience that triggers whatever you know of some way back home or some other realm or some part of your brain that you don't really access often yeah maybe that's what it is maybe flowers remind us of psychedelics yeah that's kind of interesting that's an interesting thought because um that's what they call that that gateway when you first break through to DMT and you see that crazy pattern they call it the flower of life yep. and that that flower of life is a is a very common geometric pattern that exists in a lot of religious artwork. Mosques and things mm-hmm. even, too. And goddamn, it's beautiful. When you see that, oh. you just can't help but just fucking smile and look like, holy yeah. shit, that's pretty. Yeah, and when you're having a psych, there's the flat. That's the, the very rough, crude version of that symbol, but... Yeah, you can yeah, see look some up, beautiful... Look up DMT chrysanthemum or something like that. That's exactly what you see, though. That's the weirdest thing. It's like when, you, when you're confronted with these archetypes that exist in you know, so, much, so many different pieces of artwork, and you see it like right in front of your face, you're just like, whoa. Like, that's so, like, so classic. Mm-hmm. It's, just, it's a classic image. Like, wow. It's just... It is, it is exactly what you've seen, yeah. you know? And he said that about gemstones, too, you know, and that's why the fascination with these gemstones. Oh, why are gemstones sense. so valuable? Because that's really, back in the ancient days, okay, water kind of reflects, but there wasn't all this glass and shit that we created now, but they would be able to see, they would be able to see something in that gemstone, you know, all the facets and the colors and the light, and they and it was so beautiful to them because that was something that they could only see in their you know, these visions are that, that nether region of the mind. So flowers, gems, all these things that we prize are actually hearkening back to those, you know, those visions that we have. Yeah, and for people to think that's total, complete horseshit, one of the uh, reasons why they think that is your brain most certainly produces psychedelic drugs. And they, they think that your brain produces them in large quantities while you're dreaming. And so they're, they're doing some studies on that now. The Cottonwood Research Foundation, which is where... Mm, sorry, I have a cough drop in my mouth. Dr. Rick Strassman, who uh, wrote the book DMT, The Spirit Molecule. Um, he was supposed to be here on the podcast last month, but he's such a fucking hippie. He doesn't even have a cell phone. And uh, we were exchanging emails, but it was a UFC weekend, and I was gone. He hadn't heard from me for a couple of days because yeah. I just don't do my email for a couple of days. I'm just fucking busy. Right. And so he thought some, for some reason or another I'd changed my mind or something like that. It's fucking crazy. <laughs> he made other plans. I was like, dude, what's, get a phone, you fucking... <laughs> It'd be so easy to fix that conversation, yeah. you know. Yeah. I call you, you call me, but um, he's in the middle of some uh, some new tests, and he's got a, a new book coming out. So we'll have him on soon for sure. He's a really cool guy. I really love Rick. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he um, he did some work recently um, where they discovered that 
this is, has always been the big controversy. Does DMT emanate from the pineal gland, that what is literally your third eye, that in you know the center of the brain has this eye, that this this thing that in reptiles actually has a retina and a cornea, you know, it's this weird fucking organ. And they 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 always hypothesized that DMT had come from there. That's the seat of the soul in ancient religions and the, the, the Egyptians. The dead and, yeah. yeah. Well, then they found out that it, they actually can prove it now. Rats and live rats. And a live rat, they have gone straight to the pineal gland and found DMT. So they know the DMT is coming out of the pineal gland of live rats. Pretty sure it's coming out of ours, too. Yeah. Most likely. And... If that is the case and your brain does produce this stuff, for, for sure it's endogenous to the human body. For, for sure it's produced by the liver and the lungs. And they're pretty sure for sure it's produced by the pineal gland. And pretty sure that while you're sleeping that shit's coming out. So one of the interesting facets about um, a lot of psychedelic trips, especially DMT, is that after it's over, it's very difficult to hang on to. The memories, like, they drift away and they, they fade away so quickly. It's like they're so intense and then when they're over, there's so, this lost feeling. And I've been really thinking lately because of my experiences with uh, Alpha Brain and, and isolation tanks that there might be something to that with psychedelic trips mm -hmm. for, you know, having a psychedelic trip while you're really loaded up with nootropics. Like, we'd have to figure out what is the optimum blend to give you the most clarity in recalling your experience. Yeah. Because just like a dream, DMT disappears. And so the idea is that when you're asleep, you know, we just accept the fact that we shut off for eight hours a night, if you're lucky, eight hours, and disappear and then wake up and then, oh, I got a crazy dream. I was on a skateboard and there was a missile coming my way or whatever the fuck your dream is, that... That's about as crazy as it ever got. But that might not be the case. You might be in full-blown psychedelic dream state at several times during the night. Well, you are just like a DMT trip, just like the most intense mushroom trip with your eyes closed in a dark room, like all those things. You, you might be experiencing that on a regular basis. And one of my reasons for being inclined to think that is that every time I've done DMT, I go, and not even the the times now, but the times when I first did it, I go, oh, I've been here. Yeah, I know this place. Like the yeah. fir very first time I did it, I remember that feeling. Like, oh, I've been here before. I know this place. Like, why do I know this place? And then I'm back to reality. It is a funny. That sense of familiarity is funny, especially in that you know because. After a while, I guess you could say it's because you've associated positively from going there, doing the trip before. But it really feels like it feels like another type of home. Yeah, you know, where you're just in a place that's really beautiful. It's communicating in a new way. You know, they can't. Sometimes words come through through beings and things like that. But really, it's just some kind of information is splashing against this force field that we have in the mind and creating these beautiful colors and passing along information in some code that we can't quite decipher, but we know it. You know, we know something about that message, and it's, it's a fucking beautiful place. It also seems to know that you're not supposed to be there while you're conscious. And so it's trying to give you some information while you're there. It's, it seems like, like I've always felt like when I've done DMT that while it's happening, they're like, what are you doing here? <laughs> oh, look at you. You're here. What are you here? You're here now. So it's, it's almost like 
consciousness, like being conscious, being a person who is awake and you know turning on your television and hitting your keyboard, is uh, a mode that you're not supposed to operate that dimension with. Mm -hmm. So you're sort of tricking the universe when you introduce that dimension to a conscious mode. It's like the conscious mode is like, what is the... How the fuck is this? Oh, you don't remember. You don't know. Oh, you don't know. You don't know. And then you're like, why do I know this place? Like, oh, you don't know. You, you don't know why you know it. We love you. We love you. We love you. That's one of the things I'll never forget. I had one really intense experience. And they're going, we love you 600 million, 500,000 times. Look at this. And it kept saying, look at this. And every time it would say, look at this, it would show me something like insanely crazy, beautiful, impossibly yeah. beautiful. And then the next time, it would be like a million times more beautiful than that. Like, you thought yeah. that was as beautiful as it get? Look at this. And it would show me something else crazy. It was, I love you 600 million, 500,000 times. Look at this. You know, all of the, I've been really amazed. People think when you encounter, you know, some kind of entities or beings, they're going to be real boring. Like, well, hello, welcome to my realm. Every time that I've communicated with any kind of spirit form in one of these trips, they can be funny, they're interesting, they're vibrant. You know, it's like, it's not what you think. They're not your dad. Yeah, yeah, no. exactly. It's like they, they can have a sense of humor. Mm -hmm. it's, it's really interesting how that is, you know. It's, well, we, we're so ridiculous in our ideas of how the world should be, how mm -hmm. rigid scholars and learned people are supposed to be. You know, we have this idea that you, if, you, if you have knowledge and wisdom and experience and if you're somehow or another, quote, unquote, enlightened, then you're going to be like bland and flat. Yeah, no, totally. You know, it reminds me, so <clears throat> one of the, the third experience I did in, in New Mexico, I came back, and my next up on the on the path after the snuffing the 5-MeO-DMT was a mushroom and Syrian rue trip, and they call that anawaska. Because You're just a candy-flipping motherfucker down I just there, man. Did what, I just did what, what, the, did what the, you know, the woman said, <coughs> uh, and <laughs> this was up on the menu. This was my next fucking wow. journey. So they call it anawaska because it's something of an ayahuasca analog. Even though it's not DMT-based, mushrooms and Syrian rue create that. So well, mushrooms are 5,4-aloxy and N-dimethyltryptamine. Oh, really? Yeah, that's what psilocybin is. Psilocybin oh, is, is, yeah, it's DMT plus something else. I mean, that's Very interesting. one of the more fascinating things about mushrooms itself. And, is then, that... and then Syrian rue is a powerful MAOI. So yeah. it's like com kind of combining the same mm -hmm. two forces that are in yeah, an ayahuasca me... bird. I've said it before and I've said it wrong. Let me find out. So how do you spell psilocybin? P-S-I-L-O-C-Y-B-I-N. C-Y-B-I-N. Um, either psilocin or psilocybin is the, uh, the, the actual. Yeah, here it is. Di oh boy, <laughs> I can't pronounce that. Okay, what the point is? What, forget <laughs> about all the science behind it because obviously I shouldn't be distributing it. There's psilocybin and psilocin. What's how, what, which one is psilocin? Psilocin is also um, I don't know, maybe some other active compound. Yeah, <clears throat> yeah, psilocin um, is another one that's like really close. To uh, human neurotransmitters, mm -hmm. these things are—they're just—they're—they're they're super close. They're—they're they're super close to things that um, the human brain already has in it. Yep. So, so, anyways, I do this ayahuasca trip, and <clears throat> it was—you know—I'd never done ayahuasca at that point. It was my third psychedelic experience, and uh, this one was completely different. And in this one, I was very much like some of the ayahuasca stories I told. I was riding on the back of a cobra. 
and this cobra was in the jungle. And I'm in the fucking desert in Mexico mountains here. There's no jungle anywhere. So the fact that I was in a jungle was incredibly odd to me anyways. But I'm riding on the head of this cobra in the back of a jungle. And <clears throat> I'm talking with my grandmother, who was like somehow imbued in the spirit of this, of this cobra. And she was still alive, by the way, which is another interesting facet. I've, but anyway, so I, she's imbued in the spirit of this cobra. And I'm dipping down in the earth and much like the ayahuasca visions i'm having bugs come inside me and explode and meanwhile i'm laid out on my back and i'm i'm shivering and i'm kind of lifting my chest up and i must have looked kind of crazy to the shaman but she must have been kind of used to it because i was sweating profusely and i needed blankets i was cold and i'm shivering and i'm going through this in this really intense vision but all the while my grandfather who's aubrey my grandfather aubrey's out on these rocks and, you know, in a whole different environment. And he's just laughing, like laughing so warmly and like kindly because he's saying, oh, you're really going through it now. Oh, she's going to take you down there into the dirt. And he'd howl with laughter. And he was so happy and joyous about doing that. I've never met my grandfather, Aubrey. He was so happy and joyous about it that experience that I started laughing too because I thought it was hilarious even though spiders are like going into my eyes and exploding and I'm riding on this snake and I have no control and I'm dipping down into the earth and I'm expelling this sweat and you know Aubrey's just laughing so I'm laughing and it was this whole wild experience but the thing that impressed me the most was just how vibrant and happy it wasn't like you know you see these mediums and it's all so somber and serious Aubrey says to say, you know, good luck in your next algebra test. Or I don't know what the fuck it was. But he was just happy as shit, you know. And that was the kind of experience that you that I tend to find when I encounter these entities, but either family or these other things. It's really, they're full of life. They're almost that version in its best self. That's also what you're looking for, though. <clears throat> you're looking sure. for love and you're looking for them to be full of life. So if you really are creating the universe inside your own mind, that's what you, as a positive person seeking positive experiences, would create. That's you true. You would create your, all of your relatives being super cool. Yeah, that's absolutely true. This is what uh, Rick Strassman, by the way, said. Psilocybin. This is how he explained psilocybin. That psilocybin, the active ingredient in ma magic mushrooms, uh, after being ingested, the body removes phosphorus atoms from the psilocybin, converting it to psilocin. Psilocin differs from dimethyltryptamine, DMT, by one oxygen. Uh, that psilocybin, psilocin, it, 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 he likes to think of it as orally active DMT. That's Rick Strassman's wow. take on it. So that's what, that's the the definition. Very interesting, that, yeah. And that psilocin is the, uh, that's the, the active, that's what happens when you, when you take it. That it's a, uh, it's 4-H-O-D-M-T, psilocyne or psilocin, or it's, it's spelled a bunch of different Cause ways. Because this, this really was pretty much an ayahuasca trip that I went on. Yeah. I mean, the differentiators are very, you know, it's very similar. It makes sense. I mean, experience. if you're taking an MAO inhibitor and mushrooms. I've heard mm -hmm. people have horrendous trips taking pharmaceutical MAO inhibitors and mushrooms. Uh, I, I imagine. These, I mean, because they're intensely powerful MAO inhibitors. Like, if you take a mild MAO inhibitor, like, say, Harmine, yeah. you know, and compare and it to... And that's what's in Syrian Rue. Yeah. Harmine, Harmaline, yeah. And by the way, Harmine, when they first... This is really crazy. When they first found it, they wanted to call it telepathine. 
but they they couldn't because they didn't realize that when they discovered it by use of these uh, the ayahuasca shaman, they didn't understand that it had already been discovered, that the, the chemical component of it already had a name, so they couldn't call it telepathy. But that was what they were inclined to call it because these people were tripping their balls out and having these fucking tele- telepathic experiences. These shared experiences, yeah. yeah. The problem is you can't document them. Mm-hmm. You know, you're you're freaking the fuck out. You know, you know, but you can't show anybody. And you're like, man, you're bullshit. No, take this, take this, <laughs> and they take it. Okay, what do we get to name this? How about telepathy? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I mean, when a bunch sure. of scientists decide to name something telepathy, holy shit! You know what? What are you taking? And the reason why we don't know about this, folks, is not because people are dying. The reason why we don't know about this is because we've been denied by our daddies, by our daddy overlords, our government. They've mm-hmm. kept these intensely powerful and m- hugely beneficial to some folks, hugely beneficial experiences, kept them from us. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you can only imagine how many cool ways and places and the knowledge that was out there. I mean, I'm very fortunate I was able to go with someone who'd been doing this, leading people on these journeys for 20 years, you know, and had experience, know, knew kind of the properties of what to do, knew what to mix, knew the amounts to do it. And so I could just really trust. But it gets sketchy if you're trying to, trying to figure this stuff out. That's why I always recommend people go with a guide or someone who knows what to do. And those are sometimes hard to find, you know, and that's why the only thing I recommend now is going to some places where I've been in Peru and to do ayahuasca so I can trust the, the shaman, the person, the maestro leading the ceremony. I can trust the medicine. Because it's, you know, there's a lot of iffy stuff, and that's another byproduct of making it illegal. You know, it's because you're forced to make some challenging choices, both risking legality, which sucks. You know, you don't want to wind up in a fucking cage, you know, or your choice, you know, forced to deal with something that you don't know the exact properties of, or you don't know kind of what you're getting into. So it's a lot hairier of a situation. Yeah, and if you're a person who has... A job that you like, you want to keep that job. Mm-hmm. You know, you don't want to be fired. You want to be outcast. You want to make sure you make your mortgage. You want to keep feeding your family. And then they're going to piss test you. Oh, God. That's what's really crazy. It's like you could smoke pot on Friday night when you get home from work. And if they piss test you on Monday, you're stone cold sober. You're showing up for work, clear headed, cup of coffee, newspaper in your arm. And they're like, Bob, we'd like to see you into this cup please like what? what are you talking about what did you do this weekend we own you we own your body we own your body did you do something illegal this weekend bob no 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 not at all oh you didn't hmm but no i have a medical marijuana <laughs> not federally federally you don't federally you don't federally it's illegal so pee in the cup and not only that we're going to impose our own laws we don't want you smoking cigarettes because that's bad for your health. We don't smoke. You know, I mean, the fucking healthcare programs keep you from smoking cigarettes. They they can tell you to do that. They can tell you to not smoke marijuana. They can tell you you can't do mushrooms. They can tell you no cocaine in your system. They can fucking they own you. Not yep. from nine to five Monday through Friday, but they own you on Saturday and Sunday too. They own you twenty four seven if you want to work for UPS. So they, brutal. They test your pee. Yeah. Yeah, and, and that whole idea, if they really were out there for your benefit and locking you up was for your benefit, they'd lock up all the fat people. They'd lock up all the cigarette <laughs> smokers. They'd lock up everybody doing any bad Duck thing. Duck Dynasty would go right off the air. <laughs> yeah, for they sure. They locked up all the fat people. Do you know how bad their ratings would drop? They'd fucking right through the floor. <laughs> 
It'd be like a sinkhole opened up right under Duck Dynasty. It's the same what? fucking thing. Obviously, obesity kills you eventually, and it kills you faster, way faster than that. If it's doing it for your own good, you should lock up all the fucking fat people. But that's insane, so they don't do it. But it's just as insane what they're locking people up for. Yeah. We don't need a daddy, stupid. Yep. And you're not smart enough to be my daddy, dumb fuck. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's our real problem, man. We got a bunch of fucking unenlightened people that are setting the rules. And we're making it so you can't have these enlightening experiences and be a guy that sets the rules. Because if you are, well, then we discredit you. Because mm-hmm. you're a guy, like, we found out that Obama was going on these shamanic trips and doing mushrooms. We'd be like, we got to get that fucking guy out of there. No, get him out not of us. Office. <laughs> not us, but America, yeah. the right. Can you imagine how fucking Hannity, oh, they, those they, shitheads, yeah, those fucking, that Sean Hannity type dudes. Meanwhile, it should be the criteria yeah. for leading our goddamn country. You, should you shouldn't to... be able to be president unless you've done mushrooms at least once. Yeah. Sh- you shouldn't even be allowed to. And you should, you should have a, a videotape of you doing mushrooms so we could right. prove it. Like, this is the mushrooms. Like, it should be like, sta- I, I need to know you did a big dose, more yeah. than four grams. Right. I want to see you get fucking blown out yeah. in the center of the universe and then crawl back home. You know? <laughs> like, really, that's what I want to see. And if, you know, if you've never done that, man, we're, we're having some weird conversation here because everybody who has done that agrees. Except Red Band, but you can't trust that guy. <laughs> everybody who's done, he, he doesn't think it does anything, but that's him. But everybody else that I know that has had like a blown out breakthrough psychedelic experience, they believe that it changes lives. They believe that it enhances your personality, gives you a new perspective, gives you a new way to look at the world, and is probably hugely beneficial to your growth as a human being. But the people that don't, they're the ones who judge it. The people that haven't had that experience, they're the ones who come out against it, which is so crazy. It's like blind people getting pissed that you're looking at things. Right. It's like, what are you doing? You're looking at shit? No, 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 no. <laughs> I don't right. trust what you're seeing. It's right fucking in front of you, man. The lake's right there. Says who? Says you? You crazy person using your eyes? That's <laughs> really what it's almost like. Yeah. Someone who hasn't had a psychedelic experience trying to tell you that it's bad for you or that you shouldn't do it. It's like, are you sure, okay, because I'm okay, not only am I okay, but I'm pretty sure I wouldn't be this guy if it wasn't for those experiences. And um, you're a silly bitch, <laughs> and you're telling, me, you're telling me what to do based on nonsense. Yeah. I, think, I, th- I think I'm going with my instincts here. I think I'm going, ag- I'm going counterculture on you. I'm going counterculture. There's so many forces that are pushing us away from being conscious and away from being awake. That whole little mini rant you did about what goes through your daily life from the phones to this honks to the work to all of this stuff. It's not like it was back in the old days. You know, Back in the old days, maybe you could walk your bare feet on the ground and you were pretty connected and you didn't need to take these massive psychedelic trips, although they probably did and fucking loved it all throughout all cultures. But that's besides the point. It wasn't maybe as necessary. But now in this crazy, weird world, it's so much easier to get off track. You know, and you look on TV and it's really frustrating. I get really physically antsy and frustrated when I go somewhere and they have like real housewives on TV. Because mm-hmm. it's like so visible, the unconsciousness that's going on and this drama that's all nonsensically ego-based and all of this shit that's being kind of pushed out and it's filtering through our consciousness and then you know to ban the only thing that can really well not the only thing but one of the most powerful tools to realign you it's just a it's a recipe for fucking disaster and it's It's where we are it's one of the things that makes life so interesting though 
because, unfortunately, because, I, look, I, I like to talk a good game, and I love it if everybody was enlightened, but, man, it wouldn't be as fun. One of the, <laughs> one of the things that's fun about life is that there, there are a bunch of crazy fucks out there that don't get it, and that when you do find people who do get it, whatever get it means, y- you're, you appreciate them so much more. It's yeah. like you really don't appreciate the light until you see the dark. You really don't appreciate cool until you hang out with douchey. You don't you don't you don't appreciate yeah. generosity until you meet a few cunts. You know? And that's it's unfortunate, but that's real. That's one of the things that makes mushrooms so beautiful is that people don't know. And when you do them, you're like, How is this possible that this is illegal? How is this possible this isn't on CNN? How is this possible the front page of the New York Times doesn't say, Stop everything and do <laughs> mushrooms? Stop what you're doing. Stop everything. Stop making laws. Stop doing the stock market. Everybody should do mushrooms. Holy shit. That should be the front page of the New York Times. Stop what you're doing and do mushrooms. If they, if they really wanted to give you news, life-changing news, that's the real news. It's, 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 the life-changing news is not Justin Bieber got arrested. That's not the life-changing news. The life-changing news is there's these mushrooms that grow. They grow on cow shit, and if you take them... That might be what God is. Bieber, if you're listening, I can take you down to Peru. We'll do some ayahuasca. <laughs> he's young. <laughs> Listen. He's what? He's 18, 19, something? Whatever he he's is. He's ready. He's Either ready. you or I would be dead if we were that kid. He's lucky he has a minimum amount of testosterone. He weighs 18 <laughs> pounds. Because if, if he was a manly man, like an Elvis Presley type dude, it's the reason why Elvis lost his fucking mind in pills. Because he, he ran out of cum. Okay, <laughs> they they sucked all the cum out of his body, so he just started taking pills. Is that dangerous? I guess it is. Yeah, you can't fuck everybody. <laughs> you could. You, you mean look? There's a bottom. You know, there's like there's a comfortable medium. You know, you could be like Bill Clinton. You know, you could, <laughs> you could be like a serious dick slinger, but you can't be like Elvis Presley. You just, Genghis made it to ripe old age, right? Huh? Well, allegedly, who knows what it was like <laughs> hanging around with him? I mean, the guy did a lot of crazy shit. Maybe that was why he was launching flaming bodies over the roof of fucking. Because <laughs> he was out of cum and crazy, out of yeah. cum. The guy was just coming all day long, constantly. <laughs> I think when you're, the, I mean, then by the way, Genghis existed in, the, in an era without Twitter. good luck pulling all that shit off with facebook they'd fucking revolt you know what he's doing jesus christ but the bieber thing is like this kid is experiencing not just a level of fame that most human beings will never experience almost all human beings will never experience 99.9 percent of famous people will never experience the level of fame that justin bieber is on not only that he's doing it in the craziest time ever to be famous, mm-hmm. an era where there is just constant 24-hour images coming in of everything you do. Every time he drives fast, every time he smokes pot, every time he gets pulled over, every time he gets arrested, every time something crazy happens, and he's clearly out of control. He's 19, he's got a half a fucking billion dollars in his pocket, and he's just running around like a maniac with the Willy Wonka golden ticket. What, did you, what, what would anybody expect this kid to do differently? Well, every action needs an equally powerful reaction. And I think if you were in that very challenge, I'm not going to deny it, it's an immensely challenging situation. You got to go fucking overboard the other way to make sure that you keep some level of sanity. Or ride that bitch right into the beach, <laughs> Justin Bieber style. Smoke pot on airplanes until the pilots have to do fucking oxygen in order to stay in the air. Did you hear about that? No. He was on a plane, and apparently he was smoking so much pot on the plane 
plane that the pilots had to put oxygen masks on. Look at the, the FAA is looking into allegations regarding Bieber's flight to New Jersey. The FAA is investigating it because he was on a private jet and he just started lighting up. He could do whatever he wants. He probably flew naked the entire trip. He was probably naked with a heart on. He probably was doing Viagra and cocaine together, smoking weed. He's a fucking maniac. And how could he not be? He's got more money than he could ever spend in a thousand lifetimes. And he's 19. And, by the way, everywhere he goes, girls literally lose their shit, scream and run at him and try to tear his clothes off. Yeah. And his songs suck. <laughs> so it doesn't even make any sense. It's not like he's this unbelievable creative force that right. made these songs that are just, you've got to recognize the genius of this man. I mean, he's the modern Mozart. He's fucking, he's Michelangelo if he was a singer. He's the art that he produces. It, eh, no, it's terrible. It's terrible, stupid shit. And he sounds like a girl. He sings like a girl. He's t touching their inner soul with his own music. And they run. They run like fucking World War Z, just charging yeah. at them. <laughs> you know, <clears throat> even Alexander the Great had, would, he was not perfect in any way, but he had fucking Aristotle, which was one of the greatest minds in the universe, as his mentor, you know, to kind of keep that guy in check. Because he conquered the fucking known world at 25 you know, mm -hmm. he had that Justin Bieber-esque kind of power. Even more crazy. Even more he crazy. Was a murderer. Yeah, because he could do whatever. But he's not going down as Genghis, one of these terrible people. Yeah, I'm sure he wasn't fucking perfect. But he had, you know, he did some sensible acts because maybe he had, like, one of the greatest mentors of all time. And sometimes that fails. Obviously, Seneca wasn't very successful with Nero. That thing fucking went straight into the fucking dirt and didn't really work. But I just feel like if someone with some real sense and some good psychedelics could get to him, he could be a fucking powerful force for good. Listen, Willie D from the Ghetto Boy said it best. <laughs> you got to let a hoe be a hoe. Okay? <laughs> it can't fix everybody, man. Don't worry about Justin Bieber. Let's watch. Let's watch him ride that fucking chrome Ferrari right over the cliff of life. You know, the oh, thing man. about Alexander the Great, too, he's gay. You know, so Ish. maybe a different motivation. Gay-ish, allegedly. Probably a bunch of chicks lying about him fucking him. <laughs> I mean, he had a boyfriend. He killed his boyfriend, right? Yeah, Didn't he? Right, kill... He had boyfriends and girlfriends. And he, he just he, fucked he everybody. Fuck, he fucked everybody. Fucked everybody. Huh. Didn't matter. Well. Maybe he just didn't have as much cum as Genghis Khan. <laughs> Maybe Genghis Khan lasted. I mean, obviously he didn't because Genghis Khan is responsible. Like, what is it? Like, fucking 1% of all of Asia is, is more. It's like five. What, yeah, what percentage? Some, some ridiculous percentage of the humanity. Yeah, let's, let's, what percentage Genghis Khan? Genghis Khan. I bet it's like 5%. Okay, prolific DNA implies. Okay, ready for this? This is, this is a real, Okay. Wow, holy shit. It's one half of 1% of the world today. Roughly 16 million descendants living today. Because that's not as much as I thought it was. Maybe it'd be more, um, more people in China. Yeah, higher percentage mm -hmm. in those regions for yeah. sure. <clears throat> and think then it's... you think about how much he altered the course of history with all the people he killed. Yeah, no shit, man. I mean, Jesus all the bloodlines he ended. Oh, Jesus, 8%. Oh, my God. No, it's way more than that. That's one half of 1% is just the world. But uh, it's 8% of people uh, living in 
one part of Asia. Where is it? What part of it is? Let's see. Inner Mongolia? Hold on, I'm trying to find it. I really it. want to go to Mongolia. Yeah, fuck yeah, man. It'd be fascinating. I think that uh, just seeing the wall, the Great Wall, would be fucking amazing. Mm-hmm. Seeing this area where they were they were so scared of these fucking terrorists, these savages, that they built the the giant wall, one of the, the greatest like walls of all Game time. fucking Game of Thrones, literally. Yeah, 8% of all the males living in the regions of the former Mongolian Empire carried a nearly identical Y chromosome, suggesting that they were all direct descendants of Genghis Khan. Wow. 8%. That's a gangster. <laughs> to, the, to the nth degree. But it doesn't he get any on... more gangster than him anyway. I mean, That's he's, it. He's, he's he most... fucking sets the, he sets the bar. Yeah. He sets the mark right at the end of gangster. There's Genghis Khan. And I've said this before, but if you, if you haven't ever listened to it, you've got to listen to Dan Carlin's yeah, Hardcore History. Awesome. The Wrath of the Khan. In five parts, and it's riveting the whole time. He's a bad motherfucker. Dan Carlin is such a bad motherfucker. Hardcore history, if you don't know. Fucking fantastic, fantastic podcast. And that's the the ground, the the grand crowning achievement is that Genghis Khan series, the five-part. Fuck. Thor's Angels, too. It's fantastic. All about uh, Martin Luther and, mm-hmm. and Constantine and the Bible and, and the, all the craziness that went on when they, were, uh, when they converted the Bible to a phonetic language. And the way he sets it up is just fucking brilliant, man. And you have a podcast, too. What yeah. is, Warrior Poet, right? Yep. And is it on Warrior iTunes? Poet Project. It's on iTunes. On iTunes. People can get, do you do a video aspect of it? Sometimes. Sometimes. Depends. Yeah, I have some of them. A lot of them are on video. And where do you put that? I put that, it usually stays on the Ustream, just kind of lives up there on the Ustream. And what is the, the Ustream channel? I think it's all homogenous, Warrior Poet US for Facebook, Twitter, you know, everything. That's kind of my handle, so tried to keep it consistent. Beautiful. So if people can't get enough of Aubrey's delicious tones, <laughs> go and listen to it. Go, yeah, go download sure. it, check it out. I keep them kind of short, too, so I know we got a lot of good material to listen to. I'm in the 30, 45-minute range for most of them, so we get right to it. Well, I really... I don't even flirt. I just pull the pants <laughs> down and we go deep. That's how to do it, man. <laughs> I think, um, I, I really think that this model of hyper-conscious, uh, ethical business like that you're doing with on it and that you know we like to support as much as possible when we see outside of on it i really think it can inspire a lot more like-minded souls a lot more Agreed. people and uh, i think it's it's really cool that you do this that you put all this stuff out there that you put out the blog and that you put out you, you write some really cool blogs and that you Thanks put out you really i mean you 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 put not just put the time in it you put the thought into it and it's all there it's all real. You know, you're, you're really tapping into whatever the fuck is going on inside your mind and what you're trying to express. And on top of running an awesome company, you know, that's, that's a very admirable thing. And it's also very inspirational. And that, I think, that, that tone and that mindset, that, that spreads, man. That shit is yeah. contagious. Well, it's coming from a real place. You know, I've, I'm, that's what I feel like. I don't know. That's what I feel like I've been my best actualization as all the tools and everything that I've been given is to follow that path. And I like figuring stuff out. I know that I know pretty much nothing. And when I start to find little bits and nuggets and morsels of truth along the way, it's exciting. And then being able to share those and and then, you know, not being attached to them either. If something else comes up, cool. You know, just really trying to 
put the best shit out there and improve the mood of humanity as a whole. And show that you can still do this and make money. You can still right. do this and be successful. Like capitalism doesn't always have to be evil. You know, it can be ethical. It could be conscious, socially conscious. It can be like, it's like friendly capitalism. Yeah. It's, it's People have a bad taste in their mouth about, you say the word corporation, and, mm -hmm. they, and it's just because the brains of that thing are, rot, are rotted out. But mm -hmm. if you get, you know, good brains and a good conscious and the right kind of motivation behind it, I think you could change people's minds. There's a lot of other ethical companies out there besides yes. on it too. Yeah, there are. There yeah. are. Um, I just, uh, I don't get them on the podcast that much. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, for sure. All right. Uh, on I it. appreciate all you guys who listen and stuff. I mean, some bad motherfuckers really collected some of the coolest people in the universe are coming, attaching to this momentum and creating this wave. You know, you're a part of all these things that we show on the podcast, these things about weed laws being legalized. I mean, you're a nugget of consciousness, so many of you that are pushing this forward. And that's what we need. You know, we'll move the needle, you know, as, long, as soon as the people move the needles themselves. So telling your friends and spreading the word and talking openly and being yeah. cool. That's why podcasts like this exist. I mean, the reason why, I mean, there's a, there's obviously it's, it's hitting, it's, there's a resonance. It's resonating with people, you know, and that's the only reason why it exists. If I did this podcast and then every week it was like, boo, it was fucking terrible, stop doing it. Like, eventually I'd be like, man, I'm going to stop doing that podcast. <laughs> but it's, but it, the, the, the positive resonance is, sure. is, is much responsible for uh, these thoughts as anything because it's reinforcing it. I mean, a podcast, much like stand-up comedy, it's an art form that is meaningless without an audience. Without an audience, it would just be my edification. It would just be these conversations which I really appreciate that I can sit down with so many cool people like you or like Cameron Haynes or like, you know, fill in the blank, you know, Graham Hancock, Dr. Amit Goswami, all these really cool people that I've been able to sit down and talk to. The, the, that would just be for myself. You know, I, I would have never been able to pull it off, though. I wouldn't be able to say, hey, could you sit down and talk with me for three hours? They'd be like, what the fuck am I? I got no, dude, I don't even know you, man. You know, but, <laughs> but because because I'm going to say, oh, but, but everybody else can listen. They go, oh, everybody can listen? Yeah, yeah, everybody. The whole world. <laughs> millions of people. They're like, all right, all right, let's talk. And then they'll sit down and they'll talk yeah, to you. It's a very cool thing. So for me, uh, you know, people say thank you for the podcast. It's been so beneficial. Uh, it's changed my life. It's changed my life too. It's been hugely beneficial for me because it's given me this vehicle for exploring these ideas. It's giving me this ability to tap into uh, a million different paths, diff different information that's coming at me all the time, different points of view from people that I deeply respect and I don't think the way they think. And I get to see the way they think, and I go, oh, okay, you know? Even people I don't agree with, people I do agree with. Like, a lot of times people go, oh, you don't fucking call people on their bullshit. Sometimes I don't call people on their bullshit. Sometimes I do. But one of the reasons why I don't sometimes is because I want to hear what they're thinking. I, right. I, instead of constantly judging everything that comes out of people's mouths, which I do a lot, what I like to do sometimes is I like to let it play out. I like to hear the full version of it mm -hmm. and then consider it or not consider it. You know, there's... There's a million different ways to view this life, and there's millions of different eyes to see these things through. And I'm different from you, you're different from me, and together we sort of collectively get a, we, we get a middle. We get sort of collectively, we get an, an idea of like, well, there's a lot of fucking, it might be, huh, huh. well, help each other. The, the only way we're going to ever really get a grip on what the fuck reality itself is, is if we all share our unedited, uncensored opinions on things. Mm -hmm. and Let the truth out. Sunlight and fresh air. That's not easy to do, man. 
It's yeah. not easy to do. It's, it's not, not easy to find. And in this world, there's, there's a very few opportunities. This podcast has become an opportunity to do that by sheer luck. Or not. I mean, maybe it's not. Maybe it's the fucking universe. Ultimately, planet. as you said, we're just good. <laughs> we're just good conduits for something greater. You know, exactly. we just happen to be a well-shaped hose <laughs> that whatever infra- information, inspiration can kind of flow through, and, and that's and that's it. Well, keep it together, you dirty fucks. Love you all. We love you all. Um, next week, we got Monday. Immortal, po- uh, immortal technique is going to come on the podcast uh, with a, a gang of friends. Should be fucking crazy. Uh, Molly Crab Apple, very talented artist, will be here on Tuesday. Uh, Wednesday, War Machine is going to be here. <laughs> that should be fun. And uh, he's a lot smarter than people give him credit for. it. I, I think it. that dude's going to open up a lot of people's minds. He's going to freak people out. And uh, then Joey Diaz. Uh, so uh, that's this week. Much love. See you soon. Enjoy your Sunday or whatever. Peace. Big kiss. <laughs>